0: When you dance the dance of another, you make yourself in the image of its creator. You empty yourself so that her work can live within you. Do you understand? Yeah. You're in a company now. You have to find your right place. You have to decide. What is it you want to be for this company? Is it the head? The spine? The sex? The heart? The hands. I want to be this company's hands. Higher. 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 higher
1: victim okay let's see no please don't kill me mr ghostface i want to be in the sequel
2: i like to dissect girls did you know i'm utterly insane
1: look at me damien it's all for you i am the eater of wolves and of children You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to One Good Scare.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another witchy installment of the greatest October in the history of forever. I'm Zach. And I'm Matt. And this is episode number 344, Suspiria.
3: I will just always remember this dungeon in the Dance Academy sequence towards the end of the movie. Yes. As being one of the most surprising Startling sequences I've Jaw-dropping. Yeah, like, what the hell? Sexy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when I was getting a look at Helena Marcos just sitting
2: there. It's it was like Helena, looking at myself Madame Marcos. in a mirror. Yeah. <laughs> this is the second time that we've introduced a, an episode on this podcast and said, Suspiria, mm-hmm. I think this is got to be the only time we've done the remake of ...of a film we've already covered, right? I think so. But we are, of course, now talking about the... Well, wait a second. ...2018 oh.
3: remake. Yeah, that's right. It would be. What are you talking I don't know why. It, like, Blade Runner popped in my mind, I'm like, wait, that's not a
2: remake. Right. We did do a give us a second on the Pet Cemetery remake. True. So that kind of almost means something.
3: Although we're all trying to forget that.
2: That's true. And... For those of you paying attention to the overall total, in addition to this being episode 344, this is our 400th total all in with the give us a second and the whole deal. Mm -hmm. What a story. What a journey. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yes. Anyway, before we jump into Suspiria, let's remind everyone to follow the show on x slash Twitter at GreatestPod and to send us an email, greatestpod at gmail.com. Please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please take a second and give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like a free sticker or if you have a listener request, please reach out on Twitter or via email. We're going to circle back to the listener requests in a second. And you can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby couple of things in addition to all of that. New October logo. Yes. If you're not on X slash Twitter, you may not have noticed because it doesn't seem to have gone into effect on our Apple podcast feed for some reason. For whatever reason. Some of the apps have it. Yeah. But another shout out to a longtime friend of the show, Keith, for that new design. Looks great. Just a, a yearly October design. Yep something special something i'd actually wanted to do for a while but i would always forget and then it wouldn't be october and so it's like buying
3: new clothes (laughs) (laughs) it feels refreshing to have a new look
2: oh okay i get it now so as far as the listener requests go i know it's the same old song and dance but we are now into basically may of next year and if you remember we're not having available slots for listener requests in certain months so all of a sudden you'll be in july and then you'll be close to the end of the year and as mentioned earlier this month if we get to the end of this year and we haven't filled up every slot for the rest of 2024 then we're going to take some of those away and drop down to one per month so if you have a listener request get that in as soon as possible once we get out of Greatest October, I'll give a reminder rundown of all the names who are booked right now. That way we we can make sure we didn't miss anyone or forget anyone right. <laughs> because God only knows what's been going on. Seriously. We never imagined that this many people would care at all about this stupid podcast.
3: No, it's overwhelming really.
2: Yeah, it's great, but it's overwhelming for two morons like us yeah. who can barely handle anything. There's a lot more pressure on the show now. The remake of Suspiria was directed by Luca Guadagnino, screenplay by David Kajjanic, based on Suspiria from 1977 by Dario Argento and Daria Nicolodi, which we covered on this podcast for episode number 114 on October 19th, 2018. So that's basically five years ago. Wow. Almost to the day, actually, based on when I'm going to post this. Funny how that happens. It was an hour and 18 minutes, so we hadn't quite <laughs> transitioned into the style that we go a into marathon now. style episodes. <laughs> I have a feeling this will be considerably longer, although, to be fair, this movie is also considerably longer than the original Definitely. by an hour. So there might be some more information to get to. Typically, at this point, In the show, I give you the information as to where you can stream the movie that we're covering. I'm going to actually give you two movies because I think to fully appreciate Guadagnino's Suspiria, I think you need to be familiar with Argento's as well. Right. I think the contrast is so interesting and the movies are not so similar where you'll feel like you're just watching the same thing again. 100%. They are two very different and distinct movies that are sort of set in the same kind of universe. With the same character names. Yeah. But the characters' paths are different in some instances. You can check out the original Suspiria right now for free on Tubi, the Criterion Channel, and Canopy. And you can stream the remake that we're covering right now on Amazon Prime and Freevie. It is definitely uh, interesting
3: bouncing between the two. I think everything that makes the original unique, the vibrant color palette, the prog rock soundtrack that's just like pulsating, this is the complete opposite in terms of the look as cold as can be. The music is very chilling and
2: subtle. Yeah, I think this is definitely something that we will continue to touch on as we go, but... I think that, for me, it's what I would consider a best-case scenario for doing a horror remake, especially of a classic film, where you take the original as an inspiration. Right. Of course, there's going to be a little bit of that skeleton still there. As you mentioned, the character names, the locations, some of the basic plot, but you're still essentially just using it as a jumping off point. And you're mm-hmm. going to put your own spin on it. It's going to be your own thing. Definitely. I know a lot of times that's easier said than done. I think it would be ridiculous of me to sit here and hold every horror remake to that standard because obviously the studio is going to want very marketable, profitable right. things. Yeah. But best case scenario in, in terms of an artistic perspective, I think, is this film. Now, the budget of Suspiria was $20 million. The box office was $7.9 <laughs> This was a disaster. Yeah. Amazon really lost their fucking ass on this movie, although part of it is their own fault. They didn't really market it. It played in one theater in our city for one week, and we were lucky enough to see it oh, in the wow. theater. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it had that short of a run. Oh, this thing was... Yeah, came away. Here and gone after the limited release. Because it actually did one of those things where it was on four screens in the entire country. And it had the highest per screen average of the year to that point. And everyone was like, oh, this is going to be a big hit. And then when they did started the actual rollout in the limited release, that average per screen fell off a cliff. And I I think we were among the only people in the theater when we saw it. But
3: I definitely remember the trailers for this playing in the theater. Before other movies. This was one of the trailers that would come on and I would be getting, like, goosebumps excited for. Well, first of all, this whole look that they accomplish out of it, where it looks like something that was made in the 70s. Yeah. Like, right away when that was on the screen, you can see, like, the actors have yellow teeth. It looks, like, that authentic.
2: Yeah, I would say that the production design, the set design, the cinematography, everything is so... Authentic and real feeling. There's just such a quality to this movie that you so rarely see, especially in the horror genre. Now, I understand that in terms of its plot, in terms of its content, in terms of its story, it may not be for everybody, but I think that in terms of professional quality, artistry, you can't beat this. This is such a high-quality director taking on something that a lot of other directors in his position at that point probably wouldn't bother doing. He had just done Call Me By Your Name and was a big deal, an Oscar director now. Why would you do a horror remake? It seems so lowbrow, so cheap and weird. But But it takes it and makes it something completely unique and cool. Suspiria had the working title of Suspiria Part 1 with Guadagnino and Kazanich, conceiving it as the first half of a bigger story they planned part two to explore the origins of Madame Blanc and Helena Marcos and the future of Susie Banyan the subtitle was dropped so that Suspiria would be thought of as a standalone work good thing they did that because based on that <laughs> really? box office you knew there was no chance there was going to be more it's like maybe play it safe here
3: before you know making people think that this is going to be some elongated process with multiple movies
2: Guadagnino said he would be interested in developing part two if the film were a commercial success. Hmm. He expressed interest in making a prequel about Marcos set hundreds of years before the first film, saying, I have this image in my mind of Helena Marcos in solitude in the year 1212 in Scotland or in Spain, wandering through a village and trying to find a way on how she can manipulate the women of the village. I know she was there. I know it was... Six to 700 years before the actual storyline of this film. Yeah, I was thinking uh, hundreds of year- years
3: old for this character. I wasn't thinking 1212. 12.
2: <laughs> That'd be 700 years. Yeah, hundreds still fits. In 2020, Guadagnino said a sequel was impossible as Suspiria had been, quote, a disaster at the box <laughs> office. <laughs> it's intense. It had very polarizing reactions. To me, I consider it already a masterpiece, but You can just go back and read all of the reviews put in on Rotten Tomatoes. It was like 65%. Some people were very much against this movie. It was not for everybody. 64 out of 100 on Metacritic. This wasn't not blowing people away, though I kind of feel like it should have been. Oh, yeah. I was blown away.
3: (laughs) I definitely walked out of there like, what the hell?
2: I think even Argento didn't like it, but that doesn't really surprise me because it's so different from his movie that... I think he's that probably you like, can't How this help this the but... same thing? Yeah, I think he actually did say that. Like, why would you make this and call it Suspiria? You right. should have just made it called something else. But I get why. I think that there's enough of the yeah. the original still in there. People at the time, I think, were a little bit critical of the political backdrop in this movie. The chaotic stew of it. Does it all work? Does it tie back in? the main plot? Yeah, I think that sometimes people were having trouble seeing a clear connection, a clear path to why this all made sense. I kind of feel like I get it. I don't know if the juice is worth the squeeze all the time, but I think that this movie's dealing with generational guilt post-Holocaust. It's a country coming to grips with its very haunting and horrifying past and a younger generation moving in and having to deal with the evil that their parents' generation has committed. And that's a very real thing going on in Germany during this time. But then this story is about powerful people abusing their own power, a Mm -hmm. corruption inherent within this group. There's also a lot of themes on matriarchy, femininity, body horror. Oh, yeah. You get a lot of Cronenberg vibes. Definitely. Especially in the end of the film. Poof. For a while I sheltered Lindsay
3: from this movie. She did watch it with me. I don't think this is for you. <laughs> but she was
2: fine. It's a very female-oriented film though yeah. in a yeah, way.
3: Yeah, that's true. I just when guts are
2: being pulled out of people's bodies, well, it's not for everyone. <laughs> but a lot of the film has its own weird undercurrent to it. I think it's like oozing with confrontational and downright uncomfortable sexuality in a good way but also an odd way Mm -hmm. that puts you a little off a little unsettled you're not sure what's going on and then when you get to the big reveal the big twist of the movie i think that all plays into it Mm -hmm. there's a lot of mystery a lot of times you're not sure what the characters mean when they say things is there double entendre Does Susie know way more than she's letting on? When does she make realizations about herself and about her surroundings? Does she know all along, or is there a moment some point along the way, or is it not until that very last second? I don't know. It's hard to say. And that's part of the fun with the movie, although that's going to put off some viewers because some people, I think, need a little bit more explanation. This is left very open at times as to trying to figure out exactly what's happening. You definitely have to be able to roll with it. It's a living, pulsating thing. It's very messy and strange. Personally, I consider Suspiria to be the best horror remake post-1990. Now, that may seem like a very specific cutoff point, but allow me to explain. So, in preparation for doing this episode, I thought that it would be fun for Matt and I to discuss our favorite horror remakes ever. And then you start thinking about that. And I don't know if it's 100% across the board, but I know that Matt and I have similar likes, so our interests are going to be more intertwined. So you start filling in slots, and you think, okay, The Thing, 1982, Mm -hmm. there's one. The Fly, Cronenberg, 1986, there's two. Yeah. The Blob, 88? I think for me... Well, we went to a classic movie night screening of it. Yeah, I think you like it a lot, too. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. And then you go back a little bit further into the 70s, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 78. Mm -hmm. There's four slots right there. And I think we would have a lot of overlap there, especially for both considering Suspiria to be among the five. I said to you, let's pick a cutoff of 1990 and just go everything after that Mm -hmm. as a different era of horror remakes. And we'll pick our favorites. I decided to exclude... Suspiria, just because I consider that a definite top five, and this is five yeah. others, although okay. I wrote down seven, so... Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna let you jump in first. I don't know if you have them in any kind of an order or yeah, anything like I, that. I, I put a little bit of an order, but it's not... The first
3: one and two for me were higher than everything else, so I'll just okay. say like that. I mean, I got some interesting choices on here. <laughs> I did put it in order from one to five, so if I start from number five, this may be a surprise, but... It's been a while since I've watched this, but I did really like it at the time. I looked at what the director has done besides this movie, and it doesn't look great, so I don't really know where this movie sits with people. I think it was 2010, The Crazies. I liked that remake. I think it kind of peters out at the end.
2: It is pretty effective. (laughs) This is going to be blasphemous, especially for someone living in Pittsburgh. I prefer the remake to Romero's, which is kind of slow, but... I, I didn't have it on my list, but I, yeah. I thought it was decent. Yeah, yeah. And then do you want me to go through all of them? No, you don't have to. I don't really have mine in order, though. I was just going to list some. I put Evil Dead 2013 okay. in mine. It's really gross, Yeah. which is why I like it. <laughs> <laughs> that and, in my opinion, Evil Dead Rise. I know that it's a lot of CGI. You just kind of have to get past that. But they certainly don't pull any punches in terms of what they're – insinuating is happening on screen. I know that it's all computer graphics, but they pretty much go for it. They're gross and wild. I remember seeing Evil Dead 2013 at a midnight Mm -hmm. Thursday night or whatever screening and loving it.
3: I still haven't watched that one. I've watched the most
2: recent one, right? No, we watched it. We watched it? Back at at the apartment. I don't remember it. Yeah, I guess I kind of do. There's a part with a chainsaw at the end that's pretty nuts and... Right. Okay. I, the part I remember where she's st- cutting her face off. Yeah, I remember us watching it now.
3: I just, <laughs> I'll have to go back and rewatch it.
2: Okay, we got to go a little faster. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is this take forever This isn't that
3: now. Big of a segment. My next one on my list is. I'm wondering if it's controversial as a remake. I was seeing it pop up on lists, but I put it chapter one. Yeah. The original is a TV movie. I think it counts. Okay. I liked it a lot better than it chapter two. And I just love this material and being in that world. I think we talked about it before. I didn't love the CGI Pennywise. Even Chapter 2, which I rewatched the other day, the adult Ben Hanscom is just so bad, so unmemorable for performance. Yeah, I don't even
2: remember who played him. Uh,
3: it's some loser. <laughs> <laughs> even the things that I don't like about it, I would
2: rather watch these movies just because I like being in that universe. I'm going to give 2 just to move yeah, so yeah. along. I'm going to say The Ring, 2002, Mm -hmm. and House of Wax, 2005. How about that? The Ring, I think there's a chance we'll do that on the show someday, so we won't get too much into it. House of Wax is way more fun than you would think. We watched it not that long ago. It has (laughs) a $40 million budget. They go pretty much crazy with the effects. It looks really good at times. I think there's enough gross out material that you're going to be entertained the Paris Hilton of it all actually kind of works for it rather than against it now maybe at the time you took it a little less seriously but now it's kind of funny and it's pretty enjoyable yeah we had a good screening of it recently yeah so in my number three slot
3: I think this kicked off what we knew the next generation of horror remakes to be like and I still think this was my favorite one the Texas Chainsaw Massacre
2: remake. Yeah, I have that on my list as well. Even if only for the fact that it, Jessica Biel in that movie might be better looking than anyone has ever looked.
3: <laughs> it's insane. I think yeah, I think that's enough. But that
2: one was pretty fun.
3: It sort of became the formula for a while.
2: Yeah, I think that the aesthetic that they used in that film works for Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but then they sort of applied that to a lot of other horror remakes right. of that era. Up through Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the Thirteenth. Yep, there was the Valentine one. The Friday the Thirteenth one isn't terrible, but it still kind of has that grindhousey, yeah. grim, hostile. Maybe would be an influence. Yeah. I don't know. it's just sort of like too uncomfortable. I don't even even hostile though. It might be even more fun in a way.
3: I know they lost all elements of campiness from seventies yeah. and eighties horror. I also put Let Me In from 2010. So that's what I had as my top
2: two, Suspiria and Let Me In. Yeah. Well, my last two are somewhat controversial because, one, it's questionable whether or not it's a horror movie, and one is questionable whether or <laughs> not it's a remake. <laughs> the one that's questionable whether or not it's a horror movie would be Cape Fear from 1991, the oh, yeah. I
3: saw movie. that. That was showing up on lists when I was yeah. On
2: this, yeah. I don't know... It's more of a suspense thriller with some horror elements. I'm not going to say that there isn't anything horrifying about the story. There certainly is. But I don't know that it's really a horror movie. And then if this counts, it would be my favorite of this group. But again, this one, I don't know if it really counts as a remake, which would be Bram Stoker's Dracula from 1992.
3: Which is also a movie that I love and a movie that we've done on the show.
2: It feels a little bit closer to just putting on another production like Shakespeare or something like that. Yeah. It's not really a remake of any specific movie, I don't think, other than all of the other Dracula right. movies. I don't know. But I think it counts, though. I do think the ones we listed that don't count pre-1990 are a class above even those ones, though. Totally. And Suspiria in 2018 is closer to that first class, I think, than the second class. Agreed. A remake of Suspiria was announced in 2008 by director David Gordon Green, who had co-written a script with his sound designer. In 2007, Luca Guadagnino had convinced the original film's creators, Dario Argento and Daria Nicolotti, to allow him to option a remake of the film. Guadagnino subsequently offered the project to Green, who cast Isabel Huppert, Janet McTeer, and Isabel Furman. Green described his screenplay as operatic, adding, I love Argento's film, and we wrote a very faithful, extremely elegant opera. I don't mean musical opera, but it would be incredibly heightened music and heightened and very operatic and elegant sets. But is it operatic, though? <laughs> <Jesus> <laughs> he Christ. wanted to make sure he snuck that in there. According to Green, financing conflicts resulted in the project being scrapped. Natalie Portman was evidently attached to this and was potentially going to star, and then she eventually got to make her evil ballet movie a couple years later anyway with Black Swan. I can't really tell you how happy I am that this didn't happen. (laughs) First of all, we would have been deprived this movie.
3: Well, if you explain that to me... Around that time period, I think I would have been excited. but yes. like now, knowing what I know about David Gordon Green.
2: Yeah, it would have seemed interesting at the time, yeah. but in retrospect, we now know we would have been cost this movie, right. which is so much better than anything we would have gotten back then.
3: <laughs> Not seeing what that
2: would have been. And I am a huge Natalie Portman totally. and Isabel Huppert fan, but I don't know. What are we going to do? We had to sit by and just watch... David Gordon Green make three terrible Halloween movies. Okay. It's not as if there's a lot of prestige in Halloween anyway. But now we have to watch it happen again with The Exorcist, which, again, not as if there's a ton of prestige with The Exorcist as a franchise, but it's just depressing that this is the level of I know. horror stuff we're getting now. When you know that there are true artists like Guadagnino who could do remakes of things or new chapters of things that would be cool. I know they're way more artsy. That's the thing. It's almost a
3: miracle that you get one like this because no, nobody's looking to dish
2: out 20 million and get seven.
3: <laughs> I mean, it's just not a
2: formula for success. In September 2015, at the 72nd Venice Film Festival, Guadagnino announced plans to direct a remake of Suspiria with the four main actors of his film, A Bigger Splash, which had premiered at the festival. Guadagnino revealed that his version was to be set in Berlin circa 1977 and would have as its main theme the uncompromising force of motherhood. Guadagnino has since said explicitly that the film is not a remake, but is instead an homage to the powerful emotion he felt when he first watched the original film. He said, quote, I was so terrified, but as always with something that terrifies you, I was completely pulled in. I think the process of how that movie influenced my psyche probably has yet to stop, which is something that happens often when you bump into a serious work of art like Suspiria. I think the movie I made, in a way, represents some of the layers of my upbringing, watching the movie for the first time and thinking of it and being obsessed by it. Guadagnino said in 2018 that he felt Suspiria was his most personal film to date. Wow. Part of what I think makes this remake or homage work so well is that Guadagnino turned it over to his partner or at least his collaborator, I think on a bigger splash, David Kazjanic, to do the script. And Kazjanic was not really a fan of the original, so he took a real practical approach and decided to ground the story in the real history. But he also did a lot of research of witchcraft, covens, feminist politics, and feminist art which is all infused throughout the film.
3: Yeah, that would be uh, quite a path to go down,
2: spending nights researching that shit. <laughs> oh, you're not Googling feminist yeah. art all the time, man? <laughs> I was thinking more than witchcraft pieces, but... Kazjanich chose to set the film in Berlin in 1977, the f- year the original film was released, during the series of terrorist events known as the German Autumn. The film begins shortly after the hijacking of the Lufthansa Flight 181, in order to hint at larger thematic concerns, specifically the response of the youth of the era to the denial by their parents and their grandparents' generations of German culpability in World War II. Kazanich used the political tumult of the time as a means of contextualizing the central plot surrounding the Marcos Dance Academy, quote, where an American is getting her education in a way in how a modern kind of fascism might look, unquote. For inspiration, Kazjanich studied women's literature of the period as well as the films of German contemporary filmmaker Rainer Werner Fassbinder and listened to a lot of the German singer Nico. Okay. So for a little further historical context, the German autumn was a series of events in Germany in 1977 associated with the kidnapping and murder of industrialist businessman and former Schutz member Hans Martin Schleyer, president of the Confederation of German Employers Associations and the Federation of German Industries, by the Red Army Faction, RAF, a far left militant organization, and the hijacking of Lufthansa Flight 181 by the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, PFLP, the hijackers demanded the release of 10 RAF members detained at the Stanheim prison plus two Palestinian compatriots held in Turkey and U.S. $15 million in exchange for the hostages. There was further assassinations, further kidnapping attempts, all these different things happening through 77. Going through the summer and then into the fall was not the longest time period ever, but it was this brief little window of events that were going on that looms large Mm. over the events of this film. I'd say so. I don't know that it's always the easiest connection to make, other than one of the characters is an RAF member.
3: It's clear that it's important that they're getting this across to you. What's not as clear is how
2: it ties back into our story. I think it's actually a very simple answer, which is why it's maybe hard to see, Mm -hmm. because you're assuming it might be more complicated. But I could be wrong. I just think it's more of a simple story of corruption, of power, Yeah, and not always understanding where that comes from or recognizing it and disguising it and putting it behind sort of this feminist wall of a matriarchy sends a mixed message to the audience because a lot of critics were a little put off by that, thinking, are you saying that letting women have power is bad? Is that what the message is? And I don't think it is. I think it's just using this story to convey the idea of fascism and where it would come from and how you wouldn't necessarily be able to see it. And is that maybe a clumsy analogy to make? Maybe, for some people. I don't really fixate on that too much in terms of my enjoyment of the film. Yeah.
3: I would say it also just adds to, I mean, it supplements kind of the cold, chaotic environment
2: that we're living in. Yeah, it puts this ancient coven up against... Contemporary politics of a moment and how they exist and survive. They reference what they had to do to get through the war a couple of times. But then it also plays into this idea of generational trauma, national trauma, and then even worldwide trauma of the worst kind, a painful nightmare that everyone all experienced together. And then you feel that dread and weight and guilt and anguish come through the film because think about it, it's discovering your parents and their friends and your your relatives and ancestors did something so unimaginable. I know. But right in the moment. Because in America, we may think that way about slavery or something, but now in 2023... Just the next generation reaction. It feels so far removed from us now. Right. But yeah, in that moment, they're learning about something that happened... 33 years earlier a right. lot of these people were still alive and the people that they were targeting in some of these terrorist attacks they believed at least had nazi connections still because there was a lot of surviving people for sure. a while there's still people that get yeah put on trial they're like a hundred something years old or wow. whatever it still seems to happen but it's an existential albatross too cumbersome for a country to just shrug off And so there had to be a little bit of bloodletting, literally in this movie, but figuratively with the events that were happening during the German autumn. Guadagnino was mostly interested in the witchcraft and solidarity among women aspects of Kajanich's script, themes which he said have been perverted by the official history and the official religions as making a bargain with the devil. The witchcraft that I'm interested in also has a lot to do with what psychoanalytically is called the concept of the terrible mother which you can see also in some religions particularly in the Kali goddess. Retaining the dance academy locale Kazjanich proposed that the witches would transmit their spells via movement. It makes total sense why a coven would hide in a dance company because they could wield their influence in public ways without the public realizing. Kazjanich pitched this concept to Guadagnino early on and shaped the screenplay using dance as a narrative through line. Guadagnino was also enthusiastic in response to Kazjana's setting of the film, remarking, Dario's movie was a sort of self-contained box of fleshy delicacies, which was not in relationship with the moment it was made. It was too much of an opportunity for me and David to actually say, it's 1977, deal with it, let's make it the center of the story. The movie opens and tells us there are six acts and an epilogue set in divided Berlin. Act one is called 1977. A young dancer by the name of Patricia Hingle, played by Chloe Grace Moretz, drenched to the bone, scared and paranoid, comes to see her psychotherapist, Joseph Klemperer. Patricia is manic, singing Fairest of the Seasons by Nico, Clearly Disturbed. She is part of the Marcos Dance Academy in West Berlin. Though on the surface, Patricia seems to be suffering from delusions or some other mental illness, she is convinced that the academy is controlled by a coven of witches. One of the interesting quotes that she says during this opening sequence, I like when she says there's more in that building than one you can see. Yeah, And I like the whole idea of the two worlds, that exist at once mm-hmm. in that setting and the secret side of things kind of being just underneath the surface, which I guess if you wanted to go into that whole post-Holocaust, post-World War II thing, the horror of thinking that people in your life, your neighbors, your parents, somebody could be this horrible person underneath the surface that we all now have to pretend is gone and That's over. a tough reality to face. She's talking about a lot of fear. She's also using the word retribution as if there will be punishment for what she's doing now. Well. As if she's being constantly watched and monitored. That's fortuitous. At one point, as she's leaving, after dumping all of this out on her doctor here, she says, they will hollow me out and eat my cunt on a oh, plate.
3: I know. That line was jarring. <laughs> Good Lord. Of course, in the original Suspiria, it has such a like iconic opening. Yeah. Obviously, Luca uses homage. And I feel like this is one of those things where you do kind of see it. It's not this long chase death sequence, but yeah. it has that sort of frantic pacing to it still.
2: Yeah. I think that this opening section here with Patricia allows the audience to who are fans potentially of the original to understand that there's going to be familiarity, but you're not going to see any shot-for-shot recapturing of the same thing you've already seen. You've probably already seen commercials or the trailer, so you know the color palette is going to be significantly different, but story-wise, structure-wise, Patricia in the original film, there's no sequence with a doctor or anything. Right and she's pretty much killed on screen in the opening. Patricia's not killed in the opening here. There's always a secret going on in the original film. You don't even really know for sure about the witchcraft element until pretty much the end of the movie. It's confirmed. seems pretty much confirmed almost from moment one in this movie. There's not (laughs) a whole lot of emphasis on that.
3: I do think Lily Grace Moretz is really good in this scene, though. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's a brief performance from her, but it's really strong.
2: Yeah, despite having top billing as part of the cast, she only has about six minutes of screen time throughout the entire film, and this is really the only moment where she's like herself and has time to act, but it is a pretty compelling scene. As I said, in the original Suspiria, it's not revealed until the explosive climax that the Marcos Company is actually a coven of witches for sure. In this reimagining, it is revealed within the first sequence, the meeting between Patricia and Dr. Klemperer, that the Marcos Company are witches. I guess it's not really confirmed per se, but if you pay attention to the notebooks, you're seeing it all laid out yep. pretty clearly. And you know this is a two and a half hour long movie, so I think we're <laughs> locked in as to what's going on That's here. That's right. The role of Dr. Joseph Klemperer is portrayed by Tilda Swinton. Something I didn't know
3: until we walked out of the movie.
2: You made it through the entire movie without knowing yeah, it? Was yeah, yeah. Oh, wow.
3: You said it to me on the way out. I don't know what the deal with Tilda Swinton wearing all that makeup playing this old man was, but...
2: I thought that was going to somehow factor into the movie, which was weird and why I guess maybe they tried to keep it such a secret, because it got weird. Because don't they bill that character with like a made-up actor name or something? Yeah. The character is credited as being played by an actor named Lutz Ebersdorf Mm -hmm. in the film, And all the promotional material and the filmmakers maintained that Eversdorf was a real psychoanalyst until a month after the film's premiere. Tilda Swinton's performance as Dr. Joseph Klemperer came about when both Swinton and Guadagnino thought that in a movie centering on women it felt right to have a woman also play the principal male character. During filming only a few cast members and virtually none of the extras knew that it was really Swinton in heavy makeup. They purposely created a fictitious German actor called Lutz Eversdorf as Klemperer to hide this fact. The ruse would have gone on as far as stating that Eversdorf had already passed away during the editing phase, which would have explained his absence at the movie's premiere, but Swinton and Guadagnino thought that this went a step too far. They did leave a clue in the name tying this alias to Swinton. Eber meaning boar or swine and Dorf, meaning town. In German, therefore Swinetown or Swinton. Hmm. There were rumors beforehand, and people kind of knew that it was Swinton in disguise, and that was kind of circulating since filming. It ended up not being confirmed until an interview that Swinton and Guadagnino gave to The Times in October 2018, which is when we saw the movie. Yeah. But I already knew. You knew. Some of the stuff I'm going through is downplaying. When it says there were rumors, I think it was pretty known amongst a lot of people that who were interested in the movie, at least, that that was Tilda Swinton. Which was
3: not that many people, come to find out. Yeah, I didn't notice through the whole movie. I'm like one of these idiots on the cast, just not paying attention uh, to the fact that this is someone in makeup. But watching it with Lindsay, she picked up on it right away. Not that it was Tilda Swinton, but she's like, okay, that's clearly someone with makeup caked on.
2: Yeah, she doesn't really nail the voice convincingly but i guess if i had no clue whatsoever i may have not noticed it's hard to say i guess it was just not something in a million years that i would be
3: expecting to happen (laughs) (laughs) i would just expect that
2: they're just gonna cast some old man yeah i think in retrospect it does kind of seem like what's the point what difference does it make but you know how it is with these artists, totally, totally, They get these ideas in their head, and they think, oh, well, it'd be better since this is a movie all about women. Let's have a woman in this role. I thought that because this movie deals with witchcraft and reveals, and there even is, I guess, some variation on shape-shifting at various points and different stuff like that, that this was going to somehow right. be a set-up trap that Klemperer would eventually reveal himself to be Madame Blanc the whole time.
3: That would have been interesting.
2: And have that tie into the movie. Yeah. The reveal that, oh, this has been Tilda Swinton the whole time, actually would play into the movie in some way. Okay, so the fact that it's like never revealed on screen. That was surprising to me. I actually thought they would definitely reveal it in the movie, and they do not. In my notes, I described her performance as Klemperer as simultaneously not bad and also sometimes obvious. Yeah. But- I think it becomes way more obvious once you know. Definitely.
3: Like I said, I went through the whole original screening not realizing anything. And then now that I know, it's like you can kind of hear her voice bleeding through it at times.
2: Yeah. She requested a prosthetic penis to have that's as awesome. part of the performance. Yeah, And I thought that it's was like w- boogie Nights. very wild until I realized that you can kind of see it, I guess, at the end. Okay, yeah, that's true. But when I first came across that, I was like, oh, my God, really? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> then we go into the opening montage where in Ohio farmland, a mother is a woman who can take the place of all others, but whose place no one else can take. That's the little embroidered sign That's on right. the wall in the yeah. farmhouse. The farmhouse shots are creepy. They do a lot of those quick
3: cut montage moments where it's, almost Requiem for a (laughs) Dream-like, where things are just flashing on the screen really quickly. They do a few of those throughout the movie. I feel like the Ohio stuff is always featured prominently during those.
2: Well, it's jarring a little bit just because it's unexpected. One of the fun elements of doing a very artistic and different style remake is that your audience is going to sometimes, at least a certain percentage of them, bring in all kinds of preconceived ideas about what they're going to see. Mm -hmm. There's no shot in the original Suspiria of a farmhouse down a dirt road. No. I don't know where they actually shot that. I doubt it was Ohio, but just aesthetically, it's something that's completely different from anything in Suspiria. So you're caught off guard immediately. And then the weird music starts. Radiohead singer Tom York composed the score, his first feature film soundtrack, It features the London Contemporary Orchestra and Choir and York's son Noah on drums. He initially refused the offer but accepted after months of requests from Guadagnino. (laughs) Persistent. Much of the score was completed prior to the film shoot, giving Guadagnino the opportunity to play it on set during filming. That's pretty unique because usually they wouldn't do it like that. Right. A lot of times they write the score while watching the footage, but in this way it sounds like the music was an influence on the
3: movie yeah i love that main track that he does that just like
2: suspirium or whatever
3: it's called like yeah that song's i also awesome. really like unmade yeah at
2: the end the matriarch of the banyan family is dying tended to by her daughters it's a simple mennonite clan very different origins than Susie in the original film. Mm -hmm. Susie was much more contemporary, cosmopolitan of the city. Her aunt had a relationship with Madame Blanc or somebody. There was some kind of a societal connection to get into the dance academy. It's a much more humble start for Susie here. And I like that the movie, despite the fact that there's an hour more of material and there's a lot going on, there's still a lot of mystery even as to how Susie ends up there. Does she steal money? Because okay, let's just talk about the mother flashbacks. I thought that's what they were, was flashbacks. I thought her mother was dead the entire movie. Same and then here, you realize yeah. at the end that she's not actually dead yet. Right. So it seems like a weird time for because a daughter to run off to another country. The way it's cut together doesn't it seem like there's shots where she's there. Yeah, she is there. She's playing her twin sister, which also right. confuses yeah. the story because you're wondering what her origin is exactly or if there's some sort of deal with the devil or something. But, yeah, she's the girl in the pink dress, too, is Dakota Johnson. So, yes, you kind of think that that happened in the past. That's right. Or that she's waiting till her mom dies and then goes, which is kind of what I thought the first time we saw the movie
3: that is what you would think just because that's her moment to escape this life and go pursue what she's been wanting to pursue.
2: Yeah. Because there is eventually an exchange in terms of motherhood because you have the dual mothers of Madame Blanc and Mm -hmm. mother Marcos versus what Susie's had in her life, her actual birth mother. And I think that if they had been able to continue to make these Suspiria themed films around the trilogy of mothers the mother's trilogy then i think we could have maybe gotten into more of what was going on with Susie and her mother and what happened but it's kind of cool that you don't really know exactly you get those weird flashes that she's being given when she gets to the dance academy right and her mother is like burning her with an iron for masturbating in a closet (laughs) yes (laughs) which you know obviously is intentional to like push her away from her own mother but of Her own mother seems to have some kind of an issue with her. (laughs) I'd say so. There does seem to be some problems at home. She refers to her as what she smeared on the world at one point. So who is Susie Banyan? We don't know. She is a mystery and an enigma. And that was one of the cool things about seeing this movie and being a fan of the original. You're not expecting that to be a thing. Why would we question who Susie Banyan is? She's just the main character of the movie. Other than that, why would there be any mystery?
3: Yeah, by this point, we're pretty clear that we're on a different trajectory than we were with the original.
2: We're transported from the vast spaces of the Forgotten Farm to the German autumn of 1977 as Susie Banyan, played by Dakota Johnson, an American from a Mennonite family in Ohio, is admitted at the Marcos Dance Academy Though there are some similarities to the Argento original, for example, you can truly feel how overwhelmed Susie is arriving in Berlin, and that is definitely reminiscent. For sure. Most of the aesthetic choices are completely different. We're seeing a pale, bland, dreary palette. The location is much more based in reality. It feels like a an uncompromising real world, very rainy, winterish, dread Pale, lifeless, minimal use of primary colors at any point in the entire film. No kidding. I was laughing when we did the omen episode because you said you appreciated the seventies <laughs> vibe of the omen, even though it's a movie made in the seventies. Well, and that's why it has it. in the seventies. Yeah. <laughs> I think this has a seventies vibe where you could say that. I wasn't alive and certainly was not in Berlin in 1977, but it feels very real. Absolutely. The filmmaking seems actually
3: very 70s style all the way through the aesthetic. I was saying earlier on the show, when we were seeing the trailers for this, I was like, I, I love this look. The only other time that I feel like I watched a horror movie where I was feeling like it actually looks like it was filmed in the 70s was, what's that Ty West movie, House of the Devil? Yeah. It doesn't look like this, but in its own way really looked... Like a movie that was filmed in the 70s? Or very
2: early 80s. Yeah. Dakota Johnson completed two years of ballet training in preparation for her role in this film. Being an actor is weird because I think she was doing that while filming Fifty Shades Freed or something. (laughs) So you're doing that kind of a movie and then you have to go to a random dance studio in Vancouver because you're filming your movie there to learn how to do ballet for... Literally two years as if you're going to be a professional ballet dancer. that's
3: nuts. (laughs) Dakota Johnson has a certain reputation that's mostly tied to the Fifty Shades movies, but I think she's awesome in this.
2: Yeah, I think she's kind of been able to make the transition out of that even better and faster probably than Kristen Stewart in Twilight. Because I think with Kristen Stewart, it took a little while for people to be taking her seriously as an actress. Yeah. Whereas... Dakota Johnson, yeah, there's the Nepo baby part of it, but she just seems very popular amongst all different sets. Mm -hmm. So she's got directors like Guadagnino, because she was in Bigger Splash, too. So she works with him, and then she does the real stuff, but also the pop stuff. And she started small with the social network. She has a small part in 21 Jump Street, stuff like that. In an interview with Elle magazine... Johnson revealed the intensity of the shoot had quote fucked her up so much that she had to go to therapy.
3: That I believe.
2: This seemed pretty intense and weird, and then especially the ending is very dramatic.
3: I've often thought for these disturbing movies, when these moments happen, and the cast tar- talks about it being like actually disturbing or actually, I, I always want to be like on the set experiencing this because as a viewer, I'm just thinking it's just the magic of filmmaking. You have actors act something out, and then you're adding all these things in, editing, post-production, score, that really makes it what it is. So I'm always stunned when the actors, yeah, this was really disturbing while we were going through it. I would love to see what that's actually like.
2: Well, I think that if an interview is given during the publicity blitz for the movie, you yeah. have to take it with a grain of salt, because they're still selling totally an idea. I think there's a little bit of a kayfabe yeah, element right. going on. I agreed. <laughs> Especially if it's horror-related and they're acting as if it was haunted or whatever. A cursed movie. The Academy is reeling from the sudden disappearance of Patricia, who has vanished sometime after telling Klemperer about those damn witches.
3: Yeah, I do wonder why Patricia went back to the school.
2: Well, we don't know for sure that she did. Well, that's true. We don't know what happened after she left Klemperer's office. Unlike the original film which, though set at a ballet academy, featured very little on-screen dancing, Guadagnino's Suspiria uses dance as a key plot device. Congruous to the period in which it is set, contemporary dance was a central influence on the dance style depicted in the film. Kazjanich commented that German expressionist dancers Mary Wigman and Pina Bausch were specific influences on his conceptualization of the dance routines, While writing the screenplay, Kajanis shadowed choreographer and dancer Sasha Waltz to gain further insight into the technicalities of the profession. The work of Isadora Duncan was also an influence. Outside of Johnson and Mia Goth, most of the other actresses seen in the Academy were professional dancers, and that definitely comes through. I think it's just kind of a cool example of how there's more than one way to skin a cat. You have two movies about witches set in a dance academy. Yeah. You have one that doesn't really show any dance scenes, and you have one that has a big portions of it, totally. including the dance. And they're both cool, and they both get the job done. Sometimes there is not necessarily just one right answer on how to do it. Oh, absolutely. I have to tell you, when I saw Black Swan, I'm like, oh, yeah, I understand
3: this type of ballet and dance and its existence in the world. This was something that was completely... New to me <laughs> The dancing that they're doing in this When they actually do the show Yeah And it must not be that I mainstream. can't imagine
2: you embracing modern art Or modern <laughs> dance Or things of, of this nature If I just
3: started like showing up here And like telling you before the show About like how I'm going to shows like this
2: Well how many of the dudes in that audience Were there just because it's pretty girls In their underwear and look, with I gotta, rope on I gotta tell you Not a ton of
3: tickets sold for this show
2: No No <laughs> No, I think these things generally, the ones not being run by witches (laughs) who have supernatural powers, I think they generally exist by donations from rich people. Mm -hmm. They don't really generate a ton of money on their own. But there is what I would describe as a primal violence in the dance. It demands your attention. There's an endless physicality to it. It's very grunty and like, boom, boom. A lot of breathing. Breathing is a big part of it. Yeah, (laughs) jumping, yelling, grunting.
3: And you hear all of it because that is so much more dominant than the score.
2: Yeah, a lot of feet hitting the
3: floor. I know there's that part when Dakota Johnson is jumping up in the air and you you keep expecting that it's going to end with her like breaking her leg.
2: Yeah. Well, I kind of think they want you to think that. Right. There's a little bit of teasing going on. Mm -hmm. Susie comes in and... Unlike the original where they seem to be expecting her, there's some confusion. They know who she is, but she shows up and still does an audition, which I guess is unusual to just be out of the blue doing this. The circumstances feel mysterious. There's always that sense of uncertainty and mystery throughout the entire film about everything that's happening. They're very rolling their eyes that she would even be able
3: to perform
2: this number. But she's like, no, I've studied it my whole life. I can do it. Yeah, that's what's cool about this movie, though, is that both sides of the coin, from Susie's perspective all alone versus this whole world that she's entering, there's uncertainty on both sides. She shows up, and they don't really know much about her. And that's what's awesome in the Tilda Swinton
3: performance as Madame Blanc, because this is someone, to me, that is very confident, but this person coming into her life that has introduced She's a little unsure. She's not really sure. I don't know how to take this. I don't know what you are or who you are. Yeah,
2: but I think in, a, in the end, it's a, in a good way. Yeah. She's, like, protective of Susie, and she becomes Madame Blanc's favorite. Agreed. And I think she realizes maybe not the whole truth, but maybe that she's a little bit more special than There's someone that they should there. just be using yeah. as a vessel. Susie impresses enough with her dancing to land Patricia's spot within the company, There seems to be a psychic connection between Susie's dancing and Madame Blanc, who's played by Tilda Swinton as well. She's the lead choreographer, an enigmatic presence. I love her long, witchy hair. Mm -hmm. It always looks really cool. She's casually smoking that cigarette. There's just a whole- That's her vibe. vibe (laughs) going on. It's very cool. I kind of feel like that is the Tilda Swinton vibe. Yeah. And clearly, once Susie starts dancing in another room in the academy, Madame Blanc senses it and knows, and there's this instant connection. Mia Goth plays Sarah, friend to Patricia, and soon enough, friends with Susie as well. They all live at the dance academy. It's sort of a, a dormitory life. I'm guessing these girls are all supposed to be between 18 and... 23 24 at the oldest that maybe not much older than that sarah
3: loves the dance academy nothing could be amiss here She's yeah a,
2: what do you mean witches it's an exclusively female existence yeah and once you understand that tilda swinton is playing the primary and sole male character that has lines basically then you know that this is definitely unlike most films with this many characters, yeah. <laughs> all being women. It's its own unique horror movie. I, I there yeah, What is a, really comparable to a, this? A Glenn, Gary Glenn Ross of horror with women. <laughs> <laughs> Act two, Palaces of Tears. Endless rain, just a miserable place to be. Cigarettes, haunting music to dance to. Their performance that they're building towards is called Volk, which loosely translated means it does mean folks although it is very loaded in this world because in german it kind of conjures up images of race and nation Mm -hmm. which is obviously a touchy subject at, at this point in time the rehearsals are intense and demanding led by blanc although it does seem as if most of the girls adore her and worship her i was Mentioning this to you via text earlier, but Renee Sutinjijij. Oh. I don't know the names, but <laughs> I can't. I'm going to not be able to say these names. That's right. She plays Miss Huller, and I recognized her face pretty much immediately from Spedders. And she was also in the fourth <laughs> Did you say Man. it out loud? <laughs> Is that the chick from Spedders? I don't think I'd seen Spedders yet. I think yeah. I recognized her when I watched this I the see. second time, yeah. which was with our friend Brian a couple years after it had come out. Uh But by that point, I had already seen the Verhoeven movie, spetters. And then recently, I watched his other movie, The Fourth Man. Okay. Which is hard to track down now, but I got it on VHS. And she's in that as well. So she was a a frequent Verhoeven contributor. She's not really one of the main matrons. She does have a distinct look, though. Well, a a few of them do. Yeah. (laughs) Let's be honest. That's true. A lot of the story of this version of Suspiria is doled out to the audience piecemeal through conversations between characters that aren't necessarily just exposition dumps, so it can be hard to piece it all together, but over time, you get the idea that someone is being chosen for something, Patricia didn't work out, it ended badly, yeah, Now there's a vote going on between the matrons of this dance academy, between Madame Blanc and the thus unseen Mother Marcos. Would you just hear the vote happening over other footage? Well, it would cut to the women too. We're not going to get into the vote right now. We're going to come to that later because it's, I think, directly tied in with something that happens later. So we'll just save that for a moment.
0: 1 and 2 and 3 and 1 and 2 and 3 and 1 und 2 und 3 und 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 1 und 2 und 3 shit Okay why don't we all break for 10 minutes You can't even be bothered to respect your lies. Miss Ivanova! No, 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 it's okay. Let's face this. Patricia is gone, Olga. We don't know where. If she's gone into hiding, she wouldn't have told us, would she? She would have told someone. We know that she had dealings with people who are interested in targets. And we know there was another bomb in Kreuzberg last night. She wouldn't do that. She wanted to live her beliefs. Who doesn't admire that? And there's so much to change in the world. If she wants to live in a cellar filling bottles with petrol, that's her choice. And who won't be heartbroken if she's shot by police? (laughs) You you were late. Everything. (laughs) She didn't trust you because you're hypocrites. Can we take Olga to her room, please, Tanner? done Call Olga, cop! She's had enough. And is going to pack your things and get the fuck out from this box of rabies!
2: <laughs> During rehearsal, a Soviet student, Olga becomes indignant with the lead choreographer madame blanc and Mm -hmm. storms out of the studio olga attempts to leave but finds herself trapped alone in a room lined with mirrors blanc meanwhile resumes the rehearsal during which susie performs an aggressive dance her movements begin physically inflicting olga ravaging her body and damaging her organs and bones Several of the Academy's matrons drag Olga's mangled body away with large hooks.
3: Mm -hmm. Now, throughout my life of going to movies, there's certain scenes (laughs) that always stick with me, and this was definitely one of them.
2: (laughs) It's like, holy shit. Her body's just
3: getting all twisted up. I mean, she literally starts urinating on the floor.
2: This was, I think, the moment when I truly finally, because maybe I'm a little dense, grasped that this version of Suspiria was just going to be completely different. Yeah. Because I didn't understand what was happening. They were killing a character in a way that is not like anything in the original film. It's very inventive and weird. There's a lot going on. There's so many things that you might miss. This movie definitely rewards multiple viewings. Right. And they do this in a way that's, Susie is doing
3: it, but it's also as if it's being done to her. Well, like she doesn't know that she's being made this murder vessel,
2: right? And that is what's happening. Yeah. If you pay attention, Blanc touches right Susie's wrists and feet. There's some shininess, and you see the lights. Yeah. So she's transporting this power onto her, because as it, that was described by the writer Kazjanich, they wanted to use the dance as a way to propel their magic or whatever so Susie, out of nowhere no rehearsal steps out to dance the protagonist this part that has been vacated by patricia they were going to give it to olga olga freaked out she seems to have been poisoned her mind the same way patricia's was that's not going to work everyone thinks how can this person who just showed up yesterday walk out and dance this complicated fucking thing totally i was practicing in ohio Starts doing it, as she's doing it, after Madame Blanc touches her joints, blinding tears start coming out of Olga's eyes. And then we all of a sudden realize that whatever's going on with Susie is affecting Olga as well. It's one of the standout sequences in the film. For sure. And I was definitely surprised to learn the truth about how they did it.
3: Doesn't Olga also yell witches at the room of girls at one point?
2: I think so. She says she needs to escape this box of rabies. Yeah, <laughs> the now infamous dance hall of mirrors scene, where Olga's body twists and contorts in excruciating pain, synchronized with Susie's dancing, had close to zero CGI, according to Luca Guadagnino. Elena Fokinna, being a trained contortionist and ballet dancer, in addition to having hypermobility, having flexible joints, performed all of these stunts herself. It's nuts. I never would have thought that. I kind of feel like the kills in this movie, though there are not many necessarily until closer to the end, mm-hmm. and as we know, Olga and later Sarah are not actually killed until the end. But Correct. yeah. I think these sequences, they're almost like they they're combining the operatic vibe of the omen with sort of the reckless brutality of a Friday the 13th or something. Yeah because it doesn't seem so hyper polished it seems gross she's it's pissing rough. on the yeah. floor her jaw is coming undone but oh, it's yeah. not necessarily like it's very slow and graphic it's not necessarily proud of itself as a movie no let me zoom in and really show you each thing it's like oh you might miss like actually look at how fucked up her jaw is or what is that weird thing coming out of her stomach which might have been maybe the only CGI part where it looks like her organs are sort of bursting out of the side of her stomach or something. But it's not framed in a way where your eyes just go to that. There's so much to take in, and it's very raw. It's almost like the girl hitting the edge of the car being thrown out of the window in the final chapter where it's just sort of who gives a shit. And the way they dig those hooks into her meat, the meat of her legs, (laughs) it's just so callous. I know. Almost like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where he right. puts the girl up on the hook, the meat hook. It's just, ugh, gross. I know.
3: Those little hooks are really just a vicious weapon.
2: Yeah. You wouldn't expect them to be that sharp. Yeah. It's like a, a hot knife through butter. That's right. Or a knife through hot butter. <laughs> Whichever makes more sense. It's clear that DeMarco's Dance Academy would like us to believe that Patricia's association with the RAF and other radical political groups is the reason for her sudden disappearance. Olga thought otherwise, and we see what happened to her. Journals left by Patricia in Klemperer's office detail the three mothers, a trio of witches who predate Christianity. Mater Suspiriorum, Mater Tenem Brarum, Mater Lacamerum, Klemperer was initially dismissive of Patricia's claims, but has become suspicious of the Academy after her disappearance. The mothers are a triumvirate of ancient witches and Satanists whose powerful magic allows them to manipulate world events on a global scale, killing anyone who discover their whereabouts and who are determined to rule the world. This <laughs> is all connected to three Argento films, Two beyond just Suspiria. We're really just going to focus on the Suspiria stuff because this episode is probably going to be long enough. So Yeah, I think it's fair. Too lost in the weeds. But Mater Suspiriorum, the mother of size, is the oldest and wisest of the three mothers. Her given name is Helena Marcos, at least according to the original film. She's also known as the Black Queen. Any mention of Helena Marcos being one of the three mothers would not be made, though, until Inferno which was made three years later by Argento. So even in the initial Suspiria film, it's not confirmed that she's a part of anything bigger. Although I suspect part of that was because Argento hadn't come up with that shit (laughs) yet. Just wasn't a part of it. Marcos is depicted as an ancient disfigured centuries old crone, maintaining control over the coven and seeking to acquire a new younger body as her current one is riddled in leprous sores, tumorous growths, and immobile infants' limbs growing out of her own. Yeah, it's pretty disgusting. Hey <laughs> folks, it's got me saying which witch is
3: which. Yeah, really. You know? I do like how she kind of rocks sunglasses even in like a
2: old painting. I think that it has something to do with her lack of eyes yeah. or something to do with the eyes, because at the beginning of the film, Patricia talks about her eyes being taken, and then if you pay attention later when they do the switch between Sarah and Susie, there's a whole thing with the eyes there, too. Mm -hmm. So something must be going on. That's the thing. Recently on the podcast, because we've covered things like Friday the 13th, I've made fun of the concept of expanded lore and backstory and world building and how it can often ruin horror franchises that don't necessarily need that or deserve it, frankly. But when you do have a story that can benefit from it. And you have a real visionary and artist at the helm. Now we're talking. Yeah. You can actually come up with stuff that is cool and interesting. And yeah, there's a lot of unanswered things. Why does Helena Marcos wear these glasses? (laughs) And they probably have an answer. But oh, it's sure, never yeah. really explored, and maybe it would have been explored in some some other version of the film or prequel or sequel or something. It's
3: just funny to see in this classic Renaissance-style painting.
2: <laughs> I love that painting, and yeah. w- when we get to it in the film, I do want to get into it because I love <laughs> Madame Blanc in it. Yeah. She's just like so emo. <laughs> it's like an emo painting. <laughs> Something that's definitely different about the depiction of Susie Banyan in this version of Suspiria is that you can tell that there's a certain amount of awareness on Susie's part at all times. Mm -hmm. We don't know how much, and you certainly cannot guess where it's going, but she's never put off and scared and upset the same way that Patricia and then eventually Sarah are. She seems to take everything in stride and then surprise Madame Blanc often with what she says. Yeah. She seems very aware that something's going on. She is a vessel for their magic. There's discussion early on about Susie potentially being a, a superior choice over Patricia or Olga. Madame Blanc comes to her room for some one on one time. Susie gives a little bit of a history lesson about herself and her own upbringing, but keeping it still mysterious enough where you're not really sure exactly what happened right oh she got in trouble for hitchhiking to see the Marcos Dance Academy when it came to America but you don't get the full story about what that means imagine that trip yeah in the 70s Marcos World Tour even in New York City I bet they were only performing for like 70 people yeah. at most it's like the girl in <laughs> it's like that Atari show we went to <laughs> I was going to say it's that girl from True Detective yeah. season two. <laughs> Playing in a bar for no one, zero tickets sold. <laughs> I think the most important takeaway, though, is that Susie has way more confidence and a self-assuredness than even Madame Blanc would be expecting. And I think Madame Blanc is even caught off guard and surprised often. But it still seems as if the matrons and specifically Blanc have the upper hand in whatever is going on. Blanc has a tremendous ego, but game recognizes game. She knows Susie is special. She can tell that there's something beyond just Susie being an excellent dancer. She clearly fits into their world, whatever that may be. She's a player.
0: I'm going to ask Caroline to work on your jumps with you. Yours are nowhere near good enough yet. I'll have to build you up. So that I can dance the protagonist when you perform it. I need to see you dance at this level, time and time again. I can do it. Olga made Falk seem like such heavy lifting. She never understood the heart of Fulk. She lacked conviction. I'm relieved she's gone. Thank you for your help with that.
2: One of the things they do is send Susie dreams. The second set of dreams, which come up later, I don't really have a lot of answers for, but the first set of dreams is a little bit easier to understand, I think, because you have the destruction of the mirror, the broken mirror, which I think is symbolic of breaking down vanity, which is brought up a couple of times, even by the disgusting Marcos at the very end. Yeah. And then a big part of it, other than the flashes of random imagery and then that ghost-like dancing thing, is the memory of her mother burning her hand with an iron for masturbating in a closet. What a childhood. This is clearly a deliberate act on the part of the matrons because they want to push her away from her birth mother because part of their ceremony is denying your prior mother and accepting the new mother. That's right. Which would eventually be Marco's. Doesn't seem like
3: it would be that big of an ask to deny her birth mother.
2: Seems like there's some weirdness there. Well, there's certainly some weirdness, but you have to understand that these women, these witches, they don't really know much about her, so they must think that she is religious. And they're going to have to break her down. And she's got these connections to family that maybe defy logic, even though her mother was potentially abusive. And that brings us into Act Three, which is called Borrowing. Two men arrive at the Academy looking for Patricia. These are really the only male dudes actors, since Klemperer is actually a woman. Apart from the two detectives and a handful of minor roles, many without speaking lines, the entire cast of Suspiria is female, even Klemperer, as we've pointed out. Given his comments that his interpretation's visual style is inspired by the films of Rainer Werner Fassbender, this could be seen as director Luca Guadagnino's tribute to Fassbender's The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant from 1972, which was composed of an entirely female ensemble. Also indicative of this Fassbender tribute is the casting of Ingrid Cavin as housemother Miss Vandegast. In the early 70s, Kevin was married to Fassbender and appeared in many of his movies. Oh, wow. She's actually one of the matrons that gets to survive. Okay. A couple of the matrons hypnotize these two detectives and start fucking with them. Right. As you described. (laughs) They end up pantless. Pantless. (laughs) Just laughing at their wiener. Yeah. (laughs) And then you have, at the same time, Sarah and Susie snooping around looking for information about Patricia in the records and mm-hmm. Patricia's records seem to be missing. However, Susie wanders off and she sees what the matrons are doing to these two men and laughs because I think the implication is that Susie is a virgin and has never seen a penis probably. Yeah. So, so. she's in- enjoying what she's seeing, but I think it's kind of weird that she doesn't mention it to Sarah. Wouldn't it be immediately what you would say it, to your friend? Like what the something fuck something crazy was happening. Yeah. I don't know what to say, but something really weird is going yeah. on. <laughs> that's how that I'd should be an that. indication right there. That there's more to Susie. Yeah, she she clearly would have to understand that they have hypnotized these men or right. done something to these men to make them like that, and she yeah. doesn't seem put off by that at all. Susie and Sarah's friendship blossoms while Susie quickly climbs the ranks of the Academy as Blanc's protege in unheard of speed she is appointed the lead of the academy's upcoming piece volk blanc even wants to create with suzy as muse there's some pushback though Susie establishes herself as her own person she's offering up her own edits and critiques of blanc's work when she's like writhing around sexually on the floor right and being like we should do this instead or whatever
0: I want to start work on a new piece. A piece about rebirths. The inevitable pull that they exert, and our efforts to escape them. We learn it now, but Susie, you will improvise freely at its heart. I'm interested in your instincts here. The piece will be called Wieder öffnen, open again. Allez!
2: Then there's the part where she's doing that, and then you see Marcos's monster hand reaching up from below. Right. You're like, oh boy, where is this going? Yeah. And I think this is one of those moments where watching the original Suspiria helps appreciate what's going on. Because I think that for someone not familiar at all, it could feel like this is going off the rails now, and you might lose yourself. One
3: thing that they do carry over from the original is The Helena Marcos of it all, this presence that hangs over the movie that you don't see until almost the end. And in really
2: both movies, the reveal is horrifying, (laughs) what you do see. After we get our first look at Marcos's hand, we understand that there are some signs of discontent amongst the gals working at this academy. I think so. A little disagreement. Blanc is not happy that Marcos was brought into close proximity of the rehearsal, especially without her knowledge. She argues with Miss Tanner, saying at one point, you should have told me she was coming. She wanted to feel Susie for herself, Tanner replies. So you put her in a storage closet under the floor? Mother wanted it. I thought we agreed to stop using that title. If Marcos were really one of the three mothers, we wouldn't be in this situation. Oh,
3: boy. Hmm.
2: So that vote that we saw may have been an indication that things were a little bit more tense than they seemed. Much to Blanc's dismay, Marcos has her sights on Susie already. And it reminded me a little bit of Mulholland Drive. Oh, right. This is the girl. This is the girl. Yeah, The prophesized Messiah, one of the three mothers, Mother Suspirium, that's who... Marcos claims to be is one of those three that we were talking about earlier. Obviously, based on what Blanc has just said in that scene, she does not believe that to be the case.
3: Even though she has to clearly be some version of a powerful witch based on how long she's been around.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that there is enough there to have doubts, but at the same time, though, it seems pretty clear from an outsider's perspective that Blanc would have to be right because Mm -hmm. I think that once it's clear... There is no doubt. Right. <laughs> that is true. The doubt is evaporated by the end of the movie as to who the new mother is supposed to be. But this is also something that I didn't really pick up on earlier is the idea of a witness. And this is something you have to really pay attention to all of the dialogue because they do say it, but it's part of this witchcraft ceremonies. I don't think it's really necessarily invented for this film. But Klemperer is chosen as a witness, which means there's someone that's not going to be killed that they're not going to mess with because it's a way, I guess, to maintain fear that they exist but that people wouldn't necessarily take seriously. Okay, yeah. It's not like this one man is going to be able to convince the world that witches are real. Right. But he might be able to just keep the word going, keep a buzz. I don't know. I was trying to interpret the idea of what a witness might mean.
3: Imagine having to live with that, being
2: the witness – yeah Oof There's so many cool scenes I love the part where the girls are running around on the street And they're separate from the matrons And the matrons are all in that restaurant And they're all laughing it up And carrying on oh, But they're actually having a psychic yeah. conversation Underneath all of it Explaining to us why they have to have these outings Yeah
3: Put on an appearance
2: Yeah and it also helps convince the girls That this is a life that they could have and That's live, right Even yeah. though We know, based on what Marco says later, that you're not really alive anymore. You're just gone. (laughs) There's no room for you. Yeah. (laughs) The second set of dreams and visions are a little harder to interpret for me. It's just a lot of visual stuff. This movie got into a little bit of trouble with the release of the trailer because these dream sequences used... I guess what they considered to be homages or inspiration from modern art pieces and different established things, but they got hit with some copyright claims and stuff had to be deleted. And I think it impacted some of the dream sequences in the movie itself, especially the trailer. I do think that a lot of these things probably are more tied in with the proposed sequel and prequel ideas. Cause you get those weird flashes of different things that seems like they could be from the past or part of a larger story that we don't know all of the details to. But I would say that you could probably describe them just in a general unpleasant vibe as Susie's interior transformation begins. Which brings us to Act 4, Taking. Winter arrives in Berlin... Klemperer is getting nowhere with the police who claim they found nothing at the academy, obviously having no memory of the witches playing with their Mm ding-dings. However, he learns that Patricia was wanted as a terrorist, which further complicates the issue. (laughs) Doesn't seem like she would have been that hard to find. police, can you help me find this person (laughs) you were already looking for? (laughs) Yeah. We also learn about his wife who went missing during the war obviously heavy implications that it had something to do with the internment camps Mm -hmm. or the holocaust in some sense although some of these details are not known to us yet susie's one flaw as a dancer seems to be her leaping ability girls got no hops then she dares to challenge Blanc's choreography. In response, Blanc doubles down and gives Susie the jumping ability of another girl from the Academy, which Blanc has taken telekinetically and thus forces that other girl into having a seizure. Although, she's just a part of the crew later. It's not like she died or left. Yeah, it was just a moment. <laughs> just a bad day. Yeah. Somebody took my jumping ability. Yeah. <laughs> Klemperer takes his search for Patricia directly to the Academy encountering Sarah who he immediately dumps all of Patricia's crazy theories onto. Yeah I don't know if he picked the right person for this. He knew her name. Yeah. Which is actually kind of an awkward moment where he's just like you are Sarah. (laughs) She's just like okay yeah. (laughs) You would think that after the whole
3: Patricia is a wanted terrorist thing maybe he would give this up. I know he had a moment. Where she came to him all in a panic, and he feels some sort of sense of obligation to figure out what happened here. But at a certain point, aren't you, to use an expression that comes up often on the show, the juice ain't
2: worth the squeeze. What are you saying that he should he's, just assume that she was killed because she's a terrorist? I would just leave it alone. Don't assume. <laughs> well, he's anything. a good guy. Yeah, he's worried about but it. But
3: isn't it? But isn't enough weirdness popping up now that you're like, you know what?
2: Maybe well, he already had a chance. Up to help his wife, and he feels guilt about well, that's it. That's true. And I think there's supposed to be echoes and similarities to searching for her. Yes. And so whether it makes sense or not, he feels even more of a an obligation or a connection here.
3: All right. Well, keep pulling at that thread
2: then. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see where it goes. Initially, Sarah's not buying it at all. It's a dance company. That's it. Blanc continues to work with Susie. On the surface, preparing her to dance the lead, but underneath, perhaps a secret preparation as well. So let's go back to that vote we saw earlier in the film. The matrons held an informal election for leadership over their coven. The vote was between Madame Blanc and Mother Marcos. Blanc we know pretty well by this point. Marcos is an aged and grossly disfigured witch who has long controlled the coven, whom the Academy is named for, to this point, we've just seen the hand, but we know she must be a monster based just on that. I'd say so. How do you let it get this bad though, Mother Marcos? Why would why wait this long? <laughs> and I guess you have to find the right vessel,
3: which has been the problem. It does seem like there's been some gross mismanagement of this process.
2: But which, it seems like they're not just missing it by a few years. No, no. It seems hundreds of years they've yeah, missed this. They state. can't get this damn thing right. Marcos wins the popular vote of the election and as I said she claims to be one of the big three she's Mother Suspiriorum Mm -hmm. so was there an electoral college situation here though no seems to be straight up popular vote now all this time later Miss Griffith the most standoffish and solitary of the matrons commits suicide right in front of her peers in a spectacularly dramatic way (laughs) just really (laughs) could you tone it down a notch Please, could you just go to your room and take some sleeping pills? Seriously. What the fuck? She just grabs a knife off the kitchen table and stabs herself twice in yeah. the throat. It's one of
3: those moments that every time you see it, it's it's just the moment where you're like, literally me every morning.
2: <laughs> Thinking about having to start the day. Yeah. Now, I saved the election talk because- I feel like there is a little bit of a flashback right to the votes thing right as she's doing this. does right? it
3: seem like she has a little bit of a reaction like this pains her that Blanc is losing? Yeah, I do I take her to be
2: is, but... anti-Marcos pro-Blanc, Yeah, but it's also kind of hard to tell for sure. I don't know. I feel like my memory of this was different, which is why I save talking about it until she kills herself, because I just felt like The vote is somehow directly connected to it. It feels that way, and I swear there's a there.
3: There is like a shot of her reacting a little bit. Yeah,
2: and throughout the movie, I don't know that she ever even really talks. Right. And in fact, I'm not even sure she votes out loud. Does she? No, you're right.
3: I don't. I don't remember a part where you hear her speak.
2: Because I feel like when it gets to her as the last person to vote, it's almost as if she doesn't say anything or something. And maybe maybe by that point marcos was up by two or something Maybe so it did, the... wouldn't even matter
3: yeah i don't know you're right but something seems amiss she seems unsettled throughout the whole movie yeah she's very meek
2: i don't know wh- exactly what her motivation was but it seems like she's not happy with what was going on <laughs> yeah <laughs> clearly. I <know>.
3: yeah totally <laughs> she was pushed over the line now i gotta tell you though not that much of a reaction from the group little bit a little bit yeah everyone's kind of like huh that was weird yeah wonder what that was about.
2: Sarah's eyes are opened, though, after her meeting with Klemperer when she uncovers clandestine hallways in the academy where she also discovers some witchy devil relics. I like this as a little callback to the original, the step counting, mm-hmm. trying to match it up where the secret hallways are, things of that nature. But it's all used in different contexts and stuff, so it's a callback, but it's not the same thing. This is where we actually see that portrait of Madame Blanc and Mother Marcos. Feels a little out of place. It seems like an old grandmother wearing sunglasses yeah. and, her, and an emo teen. <laughs> yeah. A moody emo teen. Right. <laughs> Imagine these two posing for this portrait. <laughs> Sarah goes back to see Klemperer. For some reason, she takes one of their hooks, the witches, but then leaves it with Klemperer. Oh, boy. Yeah. And then, I think one of the only true... Potentially jump scare moments is when we see that woman, Tanner, outside of Klemperer's office. And then it's not actually her, but it might be her because there's a shape-shifting element going on here.
3: Yeah, that is creepy.
2: Yeah, there's not exactly a lot of what you would consider traditional jump scares or anything like that. It's more of a general dread and building up towards something that you don't know what it's going to be. I would say like the
3: end of his whole little journey that he goes on later and then when that's revealed to be
2: what it truly is, yeah, that's a little bit of a scare too. Yeah, uh, but not a jump scare. Yeah. I like the flash to Susie's mother as she's still dying. Evidently not dying completely until the end of the movie. Well, really taking her time with it, yeah. This is where she says about her daughter, she's my sin. She's what I smeared onto the world. Hmm. Which sounds like a loving home. Opens up a whole can of worms though. Because if you want to get into the lore, if you want to get into the backstory, what is this? What is the explanation for Susie? I think that is a whole thing. What does that mean? Could oh, it, I agree. Could it mean that her mother had left the church and done something wrong and then maybe came back? Certainly feels seems to be carrying some shame over the whole thing. We don't really know the full story in regards to Susie's parentage. We don't really know anything about her father could it not necessarily be that she has a fucked up father, but it's something, some deal that Wait her mother second. made with the devil? Does she have one of those six 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 tattoos? Yeah, let's or look at her scars. Scalp. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I just think it's interesting that the movie plants a seed here, but lets us decide what it's going to grow into because totally. we never got any further films. So what is Susie's birth mother alluding to? And then I think once you learn the end of the film. Because obviously the first time you see it, you have no idea what's going to happen. That's right. But once you know and then you come back and you you see these scenes, then you see them as clues and little... Nuggets. Yeah, tidbits along the way, maybe informing the journey. So now you're thinking, well, this definitely feels loaded now. What does this mean? Sarah is starting to get panicked now because she fully believes that something's wrong and she's taken her fears to Susie, but Susie, again, is not concerned. She seems to almost have this flighty, above-it-all kind of dreamy existence now where she never seems fully there even during these conversations. Yeah, she is drifting away. And Sarah's getting upset saying you're making some kind of deal with them, but Susie keeps insisting that nothing's wrong. But she and, uses weird phrasing. She just says, nothing's wrong. Yeah. Nothing's wrong. She's not exactly like answering the questions directly.
3: Sarah's confidence that nothing is amiss here has now been shaken.
2: <laughs> well, she found the hook. Yeah. She saw one look at that portrait and was like, oh, no. Something's weird. The only explanation is that these people are witches yeah. because nothing else makes sense. No now. other grandmothers wear sunglasses and painted portraits. Well, I don't think any of these dancers have actually seen Mother Mark. Right. Because Good how Lord. could you? Yeah. Act 5, in the motorhouse, all the floors are darkness. Klemperer, feeling a bit like a sheep wandering into the lion's den, attends the public performance of Volk. I gotta give credit to my girl Tamara from Awkward for this one, but this performance really is Fifty Shades of Cray. <laughs> it's so <laughs> weird that Dakota Johnson is in a rope-bondage movie, know, Fifty Shades a- of Grey.
3: I cannot believe that's a Tomorrow from Awkward Quote. That is wild. That's the highlight
2: of the show. (laughs) But yes. So then she's in these movies where it's like BDSM, Dom Sub, whatever, spanking, whipping, bondage, ropes. There's scenes in those trilogy where she's being suspended by ropes, right? Yeah. So then there's this whole fucking dance performance in this movie where... All the girls are wearing only underwear, like panties. I don't know that they're even wearing anything on top. It's I don't just even know ropes, what it is. yeah. And it looks like bondage rope material, right? It's the same thing, except the ropes are bright red. Yeah, so it's
3: not exactly my area of expertise, but yeah, that seems well, fair. You've seen
2: the Fifty Shades movies, though. I
3: have. I'm not uh, afraid to admit that I have seen the Fifty Shades. Well, it just movies, I think
2: yeah. uh, visually it's right. similar, right? Yeah. And it's just weird that it's Dakota Johnson and it's around the same time period. What are the chances you're going to end up in multiple movies like that?
3: And also, this has come to be the definitive look of this movie. Like, when people think of this movie, I think
2: they picture, like,
3: this image, this group dancing in these outfits. Yeah, maybe. Usually in a frozen pose. Right. I always see that picture pop up on Instagram cinema accounts or whatever. I
2: love all the logos and designs and everything they did with this movie. Oh, yeah. And yet, at the same time, I can look at it and say, this would never be a hit. <laughs> There's just no way a movie with the letters of Suspiria as that logo is going to make money. I know.
3: I always like that thing that it looks like a uh, either a piano or a comb. Yeah, it's I always like think annoying. it was a comb.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that giant box over there that we're going to talk about later that yeah. has that big smeared S on it. Mm-hmm. It's that S that I smeared on the world. <laughs> <laughs> We've got the red ropes. It feels very suspension bondage They got the face paint. Meanwhile, as the other dancers are set to begin the performance, Sarah explores a dark passageway in the building leading into catacombs, mm, where yeah. she finds a disfigured Patricia. Now, this was definitely surprising. I did not expect this to come up in the movie. Totally
3: agree. And it was hard
2: to watch. What is going on down here? I don't know. Whatever they were trying to do failed, but they keep these girls around. They're like desiccated corpses that can't die. Yeah. It seems rough. Once that second ghoul starts emerging, that I'm not sure if it's supposed to be Olga or another girl that failed. Yeah. I was getting reminded of the end of The Hunger okay, with the yeah, vampires right. that are still alive. Mm-hmm. It's just these things that are undead, but not really alive anymore and can't fully die and- keep existing that seems awful yeah this sends sarah into full-blown panic and she flees the performance begins without her it's primal and raw and a little creepy
3: and again you're like this cannot be for a very wide audience (laughs) no this type of performative dancing
2: elsewhere lost in the dark and attempting to flee from the secret nightmare she's discovered Sarah must contend with the matron's bitter and vindictive magic as they are fully aware of what she's doing and where she is. Holes are manifested in the floor, causing Sarah to fall and brutally fracture her leg. Her screams are lost underneath the sound of the performance, but she's found seemingly healed and then quieted by the matrons. The performance continues and then Sarah emerges midway through the piece, dancing her part with robotic precision on a broken leg. Sarah's eyes have changed from brown to blue and Susie's from blue to brown. All we can really assume from that is that some sort of transference has occurred here. I don't know if they were picking Sarah to be next and now they've discarded her or if Sarah had some ability that they are now giving to Susie. I'm not really sure which one is happening because do you ever feel like there's a moment in the film where they're picking Sarah? Don't they just move on from Olga to Patricia and that's pretty much it, right? I agree. Sorry, Olga to Susie. It
3: seems like the only reason anything bad is even happening to Sarah is because of her own little investigation here. Yeah.
2: So whatever they liked about her, it seems like they took it from her and gave it to... Susie, but I don't know what exactly that is.
3: I guess we are supposed to assume that anyone who's in the dance academy, they at least see something that they want from them. Probably, yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, you gotta make the cut. Yeah. They need to sell those 80 tickets every four months. (laughs) (laughs) The dance ends abruptly when Sarah's leg gives out and she collapses in pain. As a concerned and confused Klemperer exits, he notices that Sarah's eyes have changed and leaves even more unnerved Blanc visits with Susie later that night and offers a gentle rebuke for altering the dance and thus interfering with the matron's efforts to manipulate Sarah's body. A lot of that you kind of just have to infer by what she's saying. She doesn't like come out and say it that way. But basically, they're, I guess, propping Sarah up to do the dance magically, but then Susie's sort of improvising and changing things, and it's messing them up or something, I guess. Just pissing everybody off. Blanc sometimes speaks telepathically in this scene, which is kind of cool, mm-hmm. if you notice. Yeah, sometimes yeah. she talks, and sometimes her mouth isn't moving. Right. Susie does not seem bothered by this. No. Susie's awareness level and her precocious behavior, it seems like she might be throwing Blanc off in this scene with how much she knows and what she says and does. But I also
3: think that the telepathic communication, it's more indicative that there continues to be a growing
2: relationship between these two. Oh, for sure, Yeah. yeah. But she definitely keeps surprising Blanc because earlier in the movie, which at this point would have just been seemingly days ago, Blanc said to Susie, oh, every dancer needs to learn how to speak French. And then in this scene, all of a sudden Susie can speak French fluently. It's like, where'd this come from? No dreams tonight. No dreams tonight. That's what Blanc says as she's leaving, confirming where they're coming from in the first place. But Susie does see that ghost thing in the room again which I'm not really sure what that is exactly, but a lot of times these movies with witches and covens and haunted houses and shit, they just have a lot of random just a lot supernatural of stuff going on. Weird shit happening. Brings us into Act 6, Suspiriorum. The next evening, Susie attends a celebratory dinner with the matrons. This is another awesome visual scene. I guess fitting in with what we were talking about earlier, it just really looks like it was made in the 70s, this mm-hmm. scene. And it does recall the previous scene which was just the matrons this one's mixed between the girls and the matrons but now the girls are being brought further into their world but i think it's cool the the way that it's set up there's a lot of great symbolism because blanc is seated at one head of the table and then eventually Susie finds herself seated at the other That's right. end of the
3: table they seem to be entranced with each other
2: yes they are very silent yeah and everyone else is loudly carrying on around Mm -hmm. them i just wrote some words predatory question mark sexual question mark you're not really sure what this all is i was getting a sexual vibe yeah i do think that there is some kind of a feeling between blanc and Susie, mostly from blanc's perspective that goes potentially beyond just matron motherly There could be a romantic interest, a sexual interest as well, although that's not really explored. I don't really know, but part of that may just come down to the performances of the two actresses. I don't know if I'm just projecting anything onto it. Could be. This was a scene I actually went back and rewound because I was a little confused. So at one point, the camera is focused on Susie, and then it goes to Blanc, and then it goes back across the table, and then Susie's just gone. I right. didn't was not sure what to make of this sudden departure. It is
3: weird. It almost makes it seem like she was never there.
2: Yeah, but I don't think that's the case either. I,
3: I agree with you, but it, it puts that thought in your head as a well, possibility. It puts a lot of thoughts in your head, which is yeah. what
2: this movie does. You don't know if what you're seeing with Susie's mother is a flashback. It's exactly. hard to tell what's going right. on. There's so many things where you're not entirely sure what you just saw, and then you're trying to interpret that. Mm-hmm. Because you're like, well, is she magic? Or did she just get up and leave? And if either one is true, where did she go and why? Yeah, right. I don't know. It's a departure from the group. Meanwhile, at his country home in East Germany, Klemperer encounters Anka, his presumed deceased wife.
3: And there's definitely like a total change in demeanor of the movie at this point.
2: Yeah. This is another part that completely catches you off balance, where you don't know what the fuck is going on anymore. This was so out of left field the first time seeing the movie, you have no clue what to make of it. I guess since you're watching a movie dealing with witches, of course you're not gonna necessarily trust what you're seeing, but even still I know. Even if you assume this is fake, you still don't really know why it's happening or what's happening exactly. Anka is portrayed by Jessica Harper, who famously plays Susie in the Argento original. So pretty cool casting there. In an interview with her and screenwriter David Kazjanic at the film's Fantastic Fest premiere in Austin, Texas, Kazjanic revealed he and Guadagnino thought Anka would be the best character for Harper to play. Guadagnino contacted her and proposed the idea to her, which she immediately agreed to. And then she immediately contacted the Berlitz School to learn and practice German for her scenes as she had lied to Guadagnino about being fluent in the language. (laughs) Wow. For Harper, the hardest thing to do was get the dialect right while walking backward. Always
3: cool to see a character from an original movie pop up in a different way.
2: Yeah, and it's cool because it's they give her a new character that wasn't even in the original right. film. And so there doesn't need to be any weird vibe of taking another part that's yep. been made iconic by someone else or anything like that. Anka tells klemperer that she faked her death after fleeing the nazis and started a new life in england she says that she heard he was killed during the invasion together they walk before passing through a security checkpoint into west berlin without being noticed however our dear dr klemperer hasn't been paying attention either lost in love and joy at the reappearance of his beloved in his life too late he realizes that they have journeyed to the marcos dance academy He turns to Anka, but she is gone. Cackling matrons shrieking in the winter night collect him. Mm. They've angrily retrieved their hook as well, which Klemperer had tossed in a river after (laughs) what happened to Sarah. Oh, no. The matrons mock him for not getting his wife out in time before the war and also for not believing Patricia and dismissing her words as delusions. Well. The truth is that he has been lured back to the academy to witness an impending witch's Sabbath. This is a brutally mean trick. I was going to say,
3: it's a pretty rough (laughs) series of events that ends up being super creepy, too. But I also think a little unfair for them to be holding not believing Patricia against
2: him. Even though that's what they would want, (laughs) is for him not to believe. But yeah, well, they were taking that feminist stance of believe all women... (laughs) I'm not making a joke about that. Everyone calm down. I mean I am, but I'm not, you know, I'm not taking that lightly. I'm just saying that it is hypocritical on the witch's part, but I do get what they're saying though, that they're using his own masculinity against him. They're saying you didn't take the threat against your wife seriously and you lost her and then look what happened. A woman came to you with a problem. You had a chance to redeem yourself and you didn't. They're just being dicks. Totally. (laughs) That's all. They're witches. Exactly. (laughs) They're fucking with them. (laughs) After dinner, Susie returns to the academy and is led to a chamber where Blanc and the other matrons await with an incapacitated Klemperer who is now nude. The next 15 to 20 minutes of the film is one of the wildest sequences I've ever witnessed in a mainstream theatrical movie. And had not read any spoilers that even hinted at anything. It wasn't even something along the lines of, oh, just wait till you see this. There was no warning of any kind because this was not a movie that anyone was talking about. (laughs) It's not like your friends were talking about Suspiria. No, nor have they since. No preparation for what was to come. It's something out of some weird Blu-ray I would buy from a movie in the 70s that cost (laughs) $20,000. was made in Italy and then would also have inexplicably the most beautiful women you'd ever seen, completely (laughs) nude, with blood all over them or something. It's like that, where you're like, how is this in a movie that's in the theater? This is crazy.
3: And it's not as if this movie hadn't been like a, a unique, weird, unsettling experience up until this point. But now, it's cranked up to a million.
2: Yeah, well, I think that, let's say that... This Witch's Sabbath finale was either not there or disappointing in some way or less than. I think you have a case for this being a B+, A-, even an A, if you want to be generous. But this takes it to that A+, classic five-star level of what the fuck, going all in, fearless in a way that many films don't seem to be. Totally. Balls to the wall. You're never entirely sure where to look there's so much happening yeah it is you don't chaotic. even know what to look at right it's an elaborate ceremony with both matrons and dancers a lot of nudity completely oh, yeah. naked people like
3: the normal dance troupe girls at the academy are all nude fully performing the dances that they do yeah
2: although we come to learn that they are oblivious to what's right happening. right they they're really like know. under a hypnotic spell they're just pawns in this of course, overlooking the scene is the truly beautiful and breathtaking to behold Mother Marcos, <laughs> also portrayed by Swinton. This is becoming like the fucking Clumps or like Nutty Professor <laughs> yeah. or something. She's just playing every part. It's like a Tyler <laughs> Perry movie. <laughs> but this woman just casually sitting there. She's just a clump of shit. Yeah. She's just not even a human. I it's know. so disgusting. Ugh. It's almost silly, though, because one of the arms coming out of her arms just looks like a doll or a frog or something. Yeah. It looks a little too cheesy where you're, like, laughing at it.
3: But I got to tell you, in the theater, I was not laughing at anything. Well, there's just
2: one arm in yeah. particular. that, yeah. it, If you notice that arm coming out of her arm, it, it looks a little hokey. But, yeah, in general, it is a disgusting, revolting mess, yeah. <laughs> which <laughs> reminds me of myself in a lot of <laughs> ways. It's like looking in the mirror. <laughs> In case you haven't figured it out, Susie is to become her new vessel. This body has been pushed to the limits. It's like my Toyota Corolla. Yeah. Anytime I'm taking it in to get inspected, people are shocked. That How much further existing. you want to push this thing? <laughs> but I think that one way to interpret this film, and especially this sequence, is thinking about it through the lens of control. Who has it and who doesn't have it? Because the film wants us to believe that These witches have it, that Mother Marcos has it, that Madame Blanc has it, that they know what's happening. This is a ceremony they're prepared for. Although, to be fair, Blanc is injecting a lot of doubt now into this. Yeah, she's
3: pushing a lot of something is off, and she's not clear on what is off.
2: Yeah, she's aware something's wrong, but Marcos is blinded by her own physical needs and quest for power, Mm -hmm. which again, you can tie into the whole rise of fascism thing going on in Germany- in prior decades the quest for power the blindness to what's going on i'm reminded of a joke from one of my favorite shows community i think donald glover says about someone it's like god spilled a person <laughs> and that's kind of what i think of when looking at mother marcos <laughs> a blob yeah of goo the matrons disembowel sarah to also, begin the sabbath a gross way for us to start off But it's clear that Blanc senses something is wrong. Marcos rises and then nearly decapitates Blanc when she is resistant to proceed. So clearly Marcos is significantly more powerful than any of the other witches. She's got this force chop like Darth Vader. Yeah. Where she just moves her hand and it almost completely cuts off Blanc's head. But not from like the neck, from even lower than the neck like almost down into the shoulder area. Yeah. It's quite a chop.
3: (laughs) She's like, whoa.
2: Susie, who seems pretty game to this point, steps forward and renounces her own birth mother, who then at that moment succumbs on her deathbed back in Ohio, which, as I've already sort of said, was confusing to me because I thought that what we were seeing were flashbacks so I thought she was already dead exactly but okay which is intentional it has to be as Blanc bleeds profusely and seems pretty dead Susie finally reveals that she not Marcos is mother Suspiriorum and she is there to claim the academy and eradicate Marcos
0: long enough. Forget everything. I want this to be pure. We all know what you want. This isn't vanity. This isn't. Oh! There's something wrong here. Can you not feel it? stop this now.
3: I like Marcos
2: slowly accepting like what? She's like what what?
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, well, she's been a long-time fraud and she probably never imagined a scenario where she would be exposed as such, but it has happened. And it's strange. It's an awesome twist that I never would have saw coming. Uh-huh. And yet I can fully admit that the first time I saw this film Did not understand how this made any sense. 100%. Didn't really get it at all, and yet still thought it was so cool. Yeah. Because this movie just sort of sets up a world where anything can happen, but in a good way. And you're just not expecting that this is what it's going to be. So the way that I've justified it in my head is similar to Damien in The Omen. I kind of think that Susie has always been Mother Suspirium, but didn't know that. Right. I agree with that. However, we see through the flashbacks in the film that she's always been drawn to Berlin, even as a girl, young girl being homeschooled. She's drawing on the map to, of Europe. The thing I guess she's she'd... always wanted to go there. Because I agree with that. The thing that's not
3: clear is when exactly this was awakened, and then when she fully knew that this was going to be the move.
2: I don't think that she fully knew until she started doing it. Yeah. I think though that she always knew that something was happening. Right and how that was going to play out, it was just sort of faith in that she would know what to do, I guess, when it came.
3: Well, she delivered. Yeah. She's like, oh, yeah, let me just rip my skin open, and there's like this (laughs) mysterious being living inside of me.
2: I think that you could also speculate a lot on Susie's mother and her origins and her nature and what could have happened, because clearly this is a movie about motherhood Mm -hmm. and about generational guilt and generational trauma. So there is some kind of a connection there. I don't think that Susie's birth mother is something to dismiss as nothing. That is oh, clearly I agree. There's something they there. They keep cutting back to it. And it's also disconcerting, too, because they cast somebody who is not that much older than Dakota Johnson. So mm. the woman who's dying in bed doesn't seem old at all. Yeah. She seems like she should be Susie's sister or something. I think that this whole portion of the film, the final third, is very well acted by Johnson. She really conveys a calm confidence that is very believable and I, I agree. think helps make this make sense. Because even people who are familiar with the original Suspiria or really were keyed in on everything that happened in this film and felt like this ending made sense to them the first time, even beyond all of those people, I, I just think that Johnson's performance just somehow smooths this over and you're like yeah I get it. Yep. This all She brings it home. I believe that she always was mother's spirit. <laughs> <laughs> I would never doubt it. Yep. As part of her big reveal and to finish all family business in one move, <laughs> Susie summons death as in a literal physical manifestation of the concept, killing Marcos and all of those who voted for her and supported this fraud, sparing only the matrons devoted to Blanc.
3: There's at least one
2: Marcos Tanner. Yeah. She's the witness. Right. I don't think it's super crucial. Yeah. You're supposed to get that she kills the Marcos supporters. Now, I do think there is one Marcos voter who survives, but I think she's supposed to be the witness, theoretically. Either that or it's a continuity error, which is possible. Because there's actually a lot of Matrix, and a lot of them aren't on screen that much. Patricia, Olga, and Sarah, each physically ravaged in, in a real rough state, plead with Susie to die, and she grants them that mercy. Although, in all fairness, doesn't it seem like she could have healed them? Was that not on the table? The
3: spectrum of what these witches are able to do is very unclear to me.
2: Yeah. Well, it does seem like there's going to be some healing sessions potentially for Blanc. Because for sure. It seems like they want to... Want, they want you to know that she's alive at right. the end. Yeah. I don't know why. Uh,
3: yeah, H- how many sessions that takes to get the head back intact.
2: The Tom York score coming in here with the song Unmade is such a weird juxtaposition yeah. from this w- disgusting bloodbath of violence <laughs> yeah. going on. Because I don't know if we're really conveying how gross and grotesque this becomes. There's blood and guts everywhere. I mean, watching Marcos'
3: body in general and especially in death. yeah. It's just a
2: real gross scene, yeah, and I bet tough. that room is not pleasant to smell. I wouldn't think, no. <laughs> I like that later they're just casually walking Klemperer out. That one matron is just taking him out chit-chatting. <laughs> it, I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, I know. Just acting like that hadn't happened, what what they just went through. <laughs> yeah. She actually is like singing a song at one point. It would take up to five hours to fit Chloe Grace Moretz and Elena Fokina into their decomposition makeup for the finale. The witch's mass scene is very different in the two movies. In the remake, Susie reveals she is Mother Suspiriorum, who Helena Marcos has been impersonating for quite some time, and kills the members of the coven who have sided with Marcos. In the original, she kills Helena Marcos, and that causes the entire coven and the majority of the building to explode, and she apparently had no idea that it was a coven until the climax. Madame Blanc has a very different fate in this film than in the original. In the original film, she dies when Susie kills Helena Marcos. In the remake, Blanc is partially decapitated, but later seen still alive. It's more than likely also that Mother Suspiriorum slash Susie brought Blanc back to life. Hmm. Madame Blanc as a character is also just different in general. In the original film, she's the primary ruler of the coven under Helena Marcos in a defined hierarchy that is not really challenged in the film. Yeah. And once Susie dead, eventually. In the remake, she appears to have less power in the comparison to the other witches, and she is friendly in a teacher-like manner. I still view her as sort of the second in command. I do, too, too. Although the hierarchy is a little bit different to under, it's a little bit hard to understand. Okay, I'm just going by what's presented yeah. in the movie. Like right. it's hard to tell. Totally, they all have specific functions. Like one is specifically the quote unquote house mother, and Madame Blanc is clearly there because of her dancing ability primarily and her choreography. So I could see that maybe she's like the artist in the group, but maybe as a witch she doesn't have as much power. I don't know. Yeah. But as I far guess, as influence over the girls, yeah, they yeah. all worship and adore her.
3: Well, just the idea that there would even get to a point where there'd be a vote between her and Marcos to me implies a level of power in the group.
2: Yes, that's true. But I'm, I'm talking about literal magic power. Yeah, okay. In terms of political power, yes. Okay. I do think she's the second most. And I think it has to do with her ability to run the dance academy in yeah. a certain way at a certain level. But yeah, the level of which the magic is definitely debatable, I don't know. We never see her do too much. Right. She definitely has power. Right, for sure. But it does seem to be more X-Men type power yeah. than full-blown witch that right. can do anything. It's like, oh, you, I can talk to you, but I just do it psychically or yeah, something. Yeah. Patricia's diary refers to three mothers. Mother Suspiriorum, Mother of Sighs, Mother Tenenbrom, Mother of Darkness, and Mother Lacarium, Mother of Tears, these are the three witches from Dario Argento's Three Mothers trilogy, with each witch appearing in an installment, Suspiriorum in the original Suspiria, Tenenbarum in Inferno, and Lacamarum in Mother of Tears. It's further confused by the fact that Argento has a film called Tenembra. Right. The masks seen in Susie's Nightmares were originally going to play a part in the narrative of During the Black Sabbath scene, three women would be seen wearing masks, apparently representing the three mothers referenced in Patricia's diary. The woman wearing the mask representing Mother Suspiriorum would take it off and hand it to Susie after she revealed herself as the true mother. You can still see remnants of this concept in the form of the three long dresses made of human hair in the Black Sabbath scene. The witch's sabbath that serves as the climax of the film was technically complicated due to Swinton's portrayal of three roles, each of which required their own unique and extensive makeup effects, as well as full-body prosthetics. Additional prosthetics were created to achieve the disfigured appearance of Patricia, as well as the disembowelment of Sarah. I bet at a certain point people were really second-guessing and questioning the choice to have swinton play three parts when they had to wait for all this fucking makeup over and over
3: and over if i was reading this script and getting to this scene and oh yeah it starts with a girl being disemboweled
2: (laughs) only goes up from there we've reached the epilogue entitled a sliced up Pear." the following day the academy resumes operations as usual (laughs) nothing to see here well girls that was awkward yeah we all need to move past I it. guess
3: we see something that tells us that they can do things to alter people's memories. But the girls, I recognize that we see that they don't know what they
2: did. Like the girls who are just the dancers at the school. Yeah.
3: But don't they notice that half the staff is missing?
2: Well, they do start the day by saying that Madame Blanc has left the academy. Yeah. But that's before they discover Madame Blanc is still alive. Right. So I don't know. Yes. Actually, the dancers have no memory of the previous night thinking they were all very drunk The matrons clean up the unholy mess in the secret basement. While it's being broken to the dancers that Madame Blanc has left the company, one of the matrons, Miss Vendegast, discovers Blanc on the verge of death, but somehow still alive. Meanwhile, Klemperer, who was spared and now confined to his bed, is met by Susie at his home. She recounts to him the fate of Anka, who died at the Therisenstadt concentration camp, Upon her touching him, he suffers a violent seizure that erases his memories and Susie leaves.
3: Now, she's also very apologetic for what yes. they did to
2: him. She felt that it was unnecessarily cruel. Yeah. This is where doing a recent film that wasn't a big hit is infuriating for me. Now, I know a lot of our listeners have probably enjoyed the previous two episodes because they definitely were lighter on the clips than say Scream 2 where I went a little nuts but (laughs) that's fair to say at the same time though if you're gonna use clips at all you want to have certain scenes and I just don't think this scene was on YouTube and I'm not gonna go looking for it forever obviously I gotta move on and finish the episode but this scene is really good definitely and is tearjerker good where you're like, holy shit, this story that Susie tells Klemperer about his wife, it's so emotional and real. She does say, as you said, I regret what my daughters did to you. I wasn't in a position to prevent it. I did think it would be funny if Klemperer was just like, what the fuck are you talking about? Who even are you? (laughs) Get out of here. Your daughters, you mean those old women? Klemperer doesn't really speak at all
3: during the scene. It's all her. I I think uh, you'd be pretty shaken after being a part of that last sequence.
2: Yeah, it's an emotionally devastating scene. It's really well acted by Johnson. I was wondering, though, when she gives him the seizure to take away the memory, was it just of the witch's Sabbath? Was it also of her telling him about what happened to his wife? Or was it... Of his wife in general, because doesn't she say something like that to take away all of the women in his life or something? Yeah, it's unclear, but... The way he reacts to the nurse woman coming in makes it seem like he just doesn't have any memories at all. Yeah. Which is... Sort of a rough existence. Yeah, it's that double-edged sword where she's seemingly being benevolent, but it also isn't that great, what she's doing, because he's basically now just going to live out the rest of his days in a stupor.
3: But it's got to be better... Than remembering
2: the what witch's you sabbath. Just went well, you'd yeah. think there'd be a way just to take that off the table, yeah. but still could remember everything else. Again, we haven't really seen the
3: entire spell book
2: <laughs> of what's possible. But yeah, this is just an unexpected, devastating ending to the movie. Yeah, where you're again, like so many other parts, caught off guard, not expecting where this is going. They put you in this weird position where Mother Superiorum is the hero. Yeah. Well, she's definitely more pure than the corrupted mother Marcos. Now, in terms of is she actually good or evil, I still think they're evil on the side of witches, and they want to dominate the world and, and come into power, but Marcos was corrupting it and was a fraud and was using the girls in a way that was inappropriate. What they do to Olga, Sarah, and Patricia, they just throw them away. They're garbage, Less than human. Exactly. You can start to see the, the parallels to the the damaged psyche of Germany during this time period. The date that Joseph's wife, Anka, died during World War II, November 11th, is the same date as the performance of Volk, which was 11-11, 1977, so 30-something years earlier. At the end of the film, a woman can be seen walking out of the front garden of Klemperer's former estate holding a book entitled The Great Mother. The full title of the tome is The Great Mother, An Analysis of the Archetype, written by Eric Newman. According to the description, the book explores the Great Mother as a primordial image of the human psyche. The book also describes how the feminine can be depicted as a goddess or a monster. All of these themes are explored in the film, especially towards the end, during the ritual. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you are unfamiliar with the post credit scene, or do you know? No, I'm unfamiliar with the post-credits scene. There is a post credit scene. You're not missing much, okay. but it is weird, and I didn't know about it until the time before this time okay. of watching. So the last time I watched this film, which was probably last year, I left the credits on and yeah. actually caught it for the first okay. time.
3: Yeah, no, I've never let it play out. I didn't know.
2: It's very brief. It's just Susie looking out, of a window, I guess, but kind of more towards us. And I think it's just supposed to be symbolic of her business is taken care of, so now it's on to the rest of the world, or us. It's projecting a lot onto what I think was just unused footage from the movie that they thought was enigmatic. Yeah. We knew we would maybe want one, says Kazjanich, depending on how the end of the film sat. That wasn't scripted. That was shot when they were shooting the film. Luca had mentioned wanting possibly to have a post-credits just to point the gaze of our film to the future, to make room for more narrative. I quite loved it when I saw it for the first time. Guadagnino described it as her looking out at us. So, as I said, sort of transitioning the story. Oh, boy. For the majority of the film, Susie appears to be an otherwise normal woman who finds her natural talents rewarded and prized by the coven. As the film progresses into its final act, however, it is revealed that Susie is in fact Mother Superiorum, one of the three mothers whom the coven exalts. Film Crit Hulk, a pseudonym for a writer for the New York Observer, interprets Susie's character arc as the discovery of her shadow self. Initially, she seems just a fresh-faced girl from Ohio, eager to make strides into this esteemed dance company, but her shadow self is soon awoken which we are meant to fear. Susie unleashes her libido as the rapturous demon below claws at the floor. She turns deeply sexual, almost becoming carnal as she rises to the ground. Similarly to Goldberg, another writer, they interpret Susie's unveiling of herself as mother Superiorum to be messianic in nature as she eradicates the corrupted mother Marcos and the loyal followers who idolize her. Goldberg reads Susie's destruction of Marcos and her followers as retribution for their abuse of power, saying, quote, Guadagnino is repeatedly hitting on a world where power has been abused and those who feel no guilt or shame are running rampant. We see it in Klemperer's history as a Holocaust survivor. We see it in the current events that pop up in the news during the movie. And we see it inside the coven where the older women who are supposed to be teaching and helping the students are instead preying on them. The movie isn't saying that powerful women are bad, it's saying that anyone who abuses their power to their own ends, rather than serving others, is perverting that power. When Susie, Mother Suspiriorum, shows no mercy for Marcos and her followers, Goldberg asserts that she is capable of compassion, citing the fact that she grants the physically devastated Sarah, Olga, and Patricia the sweet release of a gentle death rather than obliterating them. Goldberg extends this interpretation... To Susie, Mother Suspiriorum's visit to Klemperer in the epilogue, during which she relates his lost wife's death in a concentration camp, information he had not previously known. Goldberg reads the sequence as an emphasis that women bonding together have the power to remove the fear of death, and that while the world, especially the powerful, need guilt and shame, Klemperer should not feel those things because he has not abused his power. He's the witness... And from the perspective of witnessing an authoritarian rise to power, in his case, Nazi Germany, he is responsible for watching and doing nothing. However, it's people in power who need guilt and shame. A lot of people debated whether or not this film was feminist or anti-feminist. I think it's definitely feminist, but... I would say so. It confuses the issue, I guess, with the corruption of power. But I think I chose to read all of that because I think it succinctly hits the point of... The film is talking about a very specific corruption of power. It almost seems just random that they projected that into a story that happens to be all about women. I I didn't take
3: that piece of it to be
2: gender specific. No, there's just an evil corruption that can grow and spread. And then Susie arrives sort of unexpectedly to root that out. Now, does this all work and connect and make total sense in terms of like a, a, a larger political statement. I don't know.
3: I guess my question is, what was Mother Superior Orym up to
2: when she wasn't Susie? It's sort of like a more existential idea yeah. than just sort of a one primary identity. It's not unlike a lot of religions that have like right. the Messiah returning. Like she's sort of a prophesized person. Yeah. But similarly to Damien in The Omen, she's not really aware of that yet. She has to grow into that And while Marcos,
3: obviously a very powerful witch, she is not this prophet.
2: No. She decided she was and then used that to her own benefit and then has sort of been ruling with an iron fist. Because I think that you're supposed to take that some of the rituals and things that they've done and the way they've done business under Marcos is not how... It's supposed to be done. Yeah. It was more for the glorification of herself, which is why I think Blanc questioned her authority and tried to oust her as president or whatever, right. the little group. <laughs> I think that you can take the idea of Mother Marcos and make it make sense under the ideas being explored in the German autumn and sort of the generational guilt and anguish and all of those burning hot feelings that these people have because they don't know what to do they don't know what to do with their feelings about their world and their family and their society because of finding out how horrible the holocaust is and how, how horrible the real truth of it was and think about marcos in a made-up completely ridiculous bullshit thing i'm not saying that you have to actually think about real life horrors in comparison to fake stuff but you know what i mean Marcos, there's really a, a displacement of community and responsibility within a societal framework in favor of personal aspirations and the never ending pursuit of an accumulation of power, which is not too different from something as horrifying as Hitler, but you could also apply that to things in your own world. Totally. I don't want to turn this into a whole political thing now, but it wasn't like I was reading some of this stuff and not thinking about similar things in today's America. Oh, well, absolutely. The narrative of the Coven and Susie Mother Suspirium's inf- infiltration of it is underpinned by numerous historical incidents, including the hijacking of Lufthansa Flight 181 bombings and numerous kidnappings perpetrated by the Red Faction Army, a Marxist group whose peak activity occurred in the autumn of 1977 in West Germany. These events occurred in the wake of, believe it or not, an insane German word that is so long <laughs> that it's almost an entire line that I'm not going to even attempt. Because you know how Germany has words that are insane. I do. They yeah. have, for some specific thing that we don't have a word for, Germany has a word for it. A period referring to Germany's national reflection on their culpability in World War II and the Holocaust, which echoes constantly throughout the film. While Goldberg has pointed out correlations between the coven's inner workings and the national events occurring outside of it, others, such as Simon Abrams of The Hollywood Reporter, view them as surface-level parallels between historic signifiers that have the odd effect of subordinating those female-centered themes to a blandly familiar grab bag of sensationalistic headlines. Abrams conclude that the film offers an underdeveloped, pseudo Jungian understanding of how historical events kind of sort of overshadow their protagonists' lives. So I wanted to read that, too, to sort of balance it out. Not everyone was sucking this movie's dick when it came to the historical stuff. Because I don't know that it's fully successful in bridging that gap but I think it's a fascinating attempt and it has no impact on my enjoyment of the film
3: yeah I agree that I can understand the argument that well I see some parallels here but it's not really all tied together but I think sometimes the parallels are just enough
2: yeah and I think it's a big ask sometimes whenever the history that you're incorporating is very painful and it's still very raw and real and even though World War Two is getting further and further and further in the rear view, it's still very oh, yeah. much current enough that bringing it into your movie, even if it's only the aftermath of it 30 years later, is not always going to go smoothly with all audiences and some people aren't going to be super cool with it. Because if you try to incorporate something 9-11 oriented into your movie, granted, people have done that, but For sure. you risk alienating your audience if it doesn't come off right. There was that movie with Rob Pattinson. Oh, yeah. What was it? Remember Me or something, where the big mm-hmm. twist is that it all leading to a nine eleven ending, and everyone was like, are you fucking kidding me right. with this movie? So sometimes it just doesn't come off. And that's, that's a direct connection, whereas I don't know that this one's directly connected to the Holocaust itself. It's more the aftermath of it, but still. Yeah, I think it's a special movie. I would recommend people checking it out, going into it op- with an open mind. It's not necessarily going to be for everyone, but I think that you can pretty quickly latch onto the vibe and then just get to that ending and be like, holy fuck. (laughs)
3: This thing stands apart.
2: For people uh, who are fans of the original, I think it's a cool... Companion piece. Yeah. It doesn't replace it in any way. It doesn't even really try to be like it, but it doesn't ruin it or bastardize it. It just sort of takes it as a jumping off point to do your own thing in sort of the same playground. Right. I think it's a really amazing
3: example of doing a remake. This is a really cool approach to have, like making it your own movie while still carrying over some elements of what made the original so
2: unique and cool, but doing it in a different way, doing it in your own way. The only criticism I guess I would have, and it has no impact on me because I don't care about the box office, but... If I was going to say, how do you build the perfect movie and then make this sustainable as something you would want to keep trying for remakes? You needed to make it maybe a little bit more pop. Yeah, I think. But that's, again, not a criticism from me necessarily that I believe in. I'm just saying that if you wanted to try to build a world where artists would be able to have this opportunity, then they need to be a little bit more profitable. I think that's fair. Yeah. (laughs) But aside from that, it's one of those things that we just have to be grateful that we got. Absolutely. We just have to be happy we have it. Because it's pretty unbelievable that we do. That's one of the benefits of the beginning of the streaming wars was Netflix and Amazon and Apple and some of these people being willing to throw so much money chasing prestige. They knew that they weren't going to necessarily get profits from all this shit, but... I know. We want to have certain directors on our roster making our content even though it's a horrible word and makes Scorsese want to vomit. But you know what I'm saying? To get our stuff onto our networks, our streaming channels, we're going to pay money just to have these people, even though we're probably not going to recoup anything. And I'm not
3: really sure that it's been worth it for them. But I'm glad that it's happened.
2: Well, Apple ended up getting a best picture out of it. That's true. And they probably have spent the least, although they're the ones doing the four-hour Scorsese movie, which is going to be theatrical. So I don't know. All right, folks, let's get into segments. We're going to pare it down a little bit this week because we're recording too, and this one's already spiraling way too long. So spoiler alert, no email this week, but we do have some to read, so we'll get back into it right in the next episode, greatestpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your anecdotes about any movie, anything you've seen. Listen to our recent episodes for some examples, but we're also interested in any sort of Greatest October or horror-themed episodes. I know there's not a ton of episodes left, and we're recording another one right after this, but we will continue to read those forever. So it doesn't have to be horror-related. Any fun experience. Oh, yeah. Especially if you've done a listener request. I, I hate to he- keep harping on this, but we've done goddamn 50 of them, and I don't think we've had 50 anecdotes about these movies yet, people. So, yeah get on that
3: let us know if you saw Suspiria in the theater yeah
2: well that would be cool either of them yeah either or I've <laughs> wow, seen yeah. both of them although obviously not the first run of the original yeah. I wasn't born yet but I did get to see the Synapse 4k presentation in theaters a few years ago that was pretty cool anyway since we're not going to do email we'll just jump into recommendations
0: what are you doing what
2: what Vincent stopped making pics
0: how am I gonna know what movies to see?
2: We have a wide variety of Gene picks.
0: Gene's trash.
2: I'm Gene. I'm going to recommend another Luca Guadagnino movie that I, was in my favorites of the year last year, Bones and All. Which oh yeah. I actually forgot to look up where this is streaming, but I assume it's still on Amazon Prime. Yeah, I, th- I think so. And it's probably elsewhere as well, in a streaming rental, starring Timothy Chalamet and I forget the girl's name. I don't have the information in front of me, but it was one of my favorite films of the year. It's a total mood. I want to watch it. Yeah, you would definitely like it. I can let you borrow the Blu-ray if that'll help push you into watching it rather than just having to click on the streaming. (laughs) Okay. But it's a road movie. A lot of people compared it to Near Dark, the Catherine Bigelow vampire movie from the 80s. I think it's got a little bit of a similar vibe to that. I don't know how to explain it. It's not quite a horror movie, although there is horrifying things in it because it's about cannibalism, but I don't know that I would say it's really a horror movie. It's kind of got a road movie, relationship movie, a little bit of horror, a little bit of suspense. I don't know. Certainly a director that does vibe and atmosphere well. Yeah. So so I would recommend checking out Bones and All. It was a movie that definitely went under the radar, similarly to Suspiria. So if you haven't seen it yet, check it out. Do you have a recommendation? Um, I can just double down on a movie that came up
3: twice recently, including this episode, but I did watch it within the last couple weeks, streaming on Max, the Chloe Grace Moretz remake of Let the Right One In, Let Me In. Just another awesome... Yeah. um, And I I rewatched it for the first time in quite a while the other day, and really a, a great movie.
2: Yeah, for those of you who don't know, Matt Reeves, who made the Batman movie from last year... That was last year or this year? That was last year. Last year, yeah. That was one of his earlier works, was the American remake... Of Let the Right One In, which is based on a book, but it was called Let Me In. It's pretty similar, but really good performances from Richard Jenkins, Chloe Grace Moretz. The main came out the same year as Kick Ass, I think. She was really having a 2010 a moment there. Yeah, I really liked it, and the climax of the movie is really absolutely yeah. I would compare it to like a Tarantino style. Yeah, maybe you don't see as much as as you would in a Tarantino movie. I think, but you're so pumped. Yeah. She's
0: never seen a single Paul Walker movie. That's a huge oh-no-no. No. She also doesn't care about Blu-ray.
1: She's a monster.
2: So let's move on to physical media, Spotlight. Matt, I'll let you go first since you just were scrambling right before yeah. we started recording.
3: I had taken some pictures of some stuff a while back when I knew we were going to do this, so I just I went back to those. I'm going to do a, a fun one. Okay. <laughs> Or at least one that I think is fun, and it ties back to the show a little bit, the Grindhouse-releasing Death Game. Yeah. Of course, it's the inspiration for knock knock, knock knock, a show favorite, and an episode that was really exciting for us back in the day. It's a crazy, campy, Grindhouse movie, but we love calling Camp, yes, who's in the film, and it's just a great time.
2: Yeah, for those of you who maybe aren't following up, Matt's saying... Who haven't been with the show and listening to every episode? We did cover a film called Knock Knock, which was not a big movie. It was pretty much straight to VOD, came out like twenty fifteen, but we did it like in the first fifty episodes of the show. I think it's
3: had some weird runs now in the streaming world. Where I swear, like at a certain time, I'd get on like Netflix and it would be in like their top streaming movies or something. (laughs) Stars
2: Keanu Reeves. Anna de Armas, which is where we discovered her, obviously a show favorite. Mm-hmm. And what's the other girl's name? Lorenza Izzo. Yeah, another show favorite. And it's a remake of the movie Matt was talking about, which finally got a Blu-ray release. It wasn't even really available anywhere. Yeah. It was called Death Game. It came out in the 70s. Rushmore's dad, Seymour Cassell, That's is in right, it. Yeah. But his voice is dubbed over by someone else because <laughs> he wouldn't come back to do the, the pickups and stuff they needed. Because he was pissed off about something. Well, the whole thing was we did Knock Knock on the show, and Eli Roth, who directed Knock Knock, I guess listened to it or something and tweeted about it, or at least claimed to. Yeah, which was wild. Yeah, because we had, like, zero listeners at the time. Yeah, so for him to find it. Which means he was searching tweets of himself, but still. We're okay. He was looking for anyone who liked Knock Knock, and he finally found two chuds who were like, yeah, Knock (laughs) Knock is great. No one else liked it. I don't know. I think it's a fun story.
3: Definitely. <laughs> it was a big moment for the show.
2: I wish they still made movies like Knock Knock. It
3: didn't really get us any juice
2: or, or buzz. We had or anything, a little but... surge in downloads that day yeah. for that episode, but not much. Yeah, no. You not, nothing I'll...
3: like what we get now.
2: No. Not no. even close. My physical media spotlight is sort of a shameful revelation that I've decided to provide for everyone for entertainment purposes only, and I assure you that's what this is for, not bragging or anything or in any way trying to insinuate that this is a positive thing that I've done, (laughs) because it's really embarrassing and sad that I did this. There was a time Mm -hmm. when I first started getting into 4K Blu-rays after having collected mostly Blu-rays for a few years upgrading to a 4k player i think it was when we got a new tv at the old apartment right got a new player started buying 4ks but i initially was thinking i'm not going to just rebuy everything (laughs) yeah
3: i know turns out multiple times
2: things would come out and i would see them come out at the stores that i check basically every day several (laughs) times a day (laughs) online stores right and i would just let them go and not buy them and not really think too much about most of them. But eventually I realized that Suspiria, this movie we just covered, was one of my favorite movies of the decade. I really loved it. I thought it was like an A plus, five stars. And the further we got from it, I was liking it more and more and more. And I realized I wanted it on 4K, but it was sort of complicated because it's an Amazon movie, they barely did a Blu-ray release. There is a Blu-ray, I owned the Blu-ray. Matt now has the (laughs) Blu-ray. The 4K was never released in America, and there was a regular edition, and then there was this jumbo ridiculous box. It's like, I think the biggest box I have. Spoiler alert, I do have it now. (laughs) It's huge. It's like literally the board game Clue size. (laughs) It's like a board game. Trivial Pursuit, I think, is actually a good comp for how big the box is. It's just a black box with a big S on it. That's super limited. That's the one I really wanted. And I was jealous because I follow someone on Instagram that buys a lot of movies and they bought it. And I was like, I need to have this. (laughs) Unfortunately, trying to find it on eBay was like impossible because there aren't that many of them. And I didn't really feel super comfortable buying one from overseas because I didn't want to spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on something that might not make it to America. So I was waiting for one to be sold in the U.S. and would check eBay three times a day or whatever. And eventually somebody put up the regular version, which is just in a regular case, as a buy it now. Now, I have the Neon Demon 4K, which is very similar. I think the same company in Germany put it out, super limited, Okay. out of print immediately. You can't really get the Neon Demon on 4K now. But I got that at regular price because I just bought it when it came out. So I waited forever. I didn't buy the regular edition because I was waiting for that special edition, the big one. Waiting and waiting and waiting. <laughs> yeah. Eventually, it was about a year ago, I started to get a little depressed or whatever. So I just said, fuck it, and I bought the regular edition of Susperia 2018 4K German import off of eBay, $250 for that, that <laughs> yeah. Matt is looking at right there. Yeah, right. Insane. Okay. I need to get the dates right for when I <laughs> did the stupidest thing ever, but it's not that much time. <laughs> So that was on September 23rd, 2022. Okay. On October 12th, 2022, (laughs) I spent in an auction $371 on that big box over there. All right. But my maximum bid was way higher than that. (laughs) It was like, I'm getting this. It was basically how I approached that auction was, you can bid whatever you want. I'm getting it. (laughs) So that was I like thought it was almost... going more
3: after what you spent on that one. I I'm know. Like, the, you would hell. think
2: the difference would be more. Yeah. I overpaid dramatically for both, <laughs> but that one by way more. Yeah. So, yes, it was over $600 for the 4Ks that I have of this movie now. Yep. And I just gave Matt the Blu-ray for free, and I guarantee you it looks basically the same. <laughs> I, I I'm never even opening yeah. that giant box. Yeah. I don't even know what's in there. But it looks really cool, and it's I'm glad I have something it. witchcrafty. I feel like I'm revealing a personal secret on the show here, and okay. this is not meant to brag about spending a lot of money. I don't have a lot of money. I don't know why I would do stuff like this, but I do it all the time. Yeah. I'm just letting people know how sick and demented I am.
3: <laughs> it may be a little bit of a problem.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, treating depression with just buying things has been going great for me. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, this one's long enough. We got another one to record right now. We're hitting the home stretch. I can't believe it. We were complaining before we even started October when we were recording the early I episodes, know. saying like, "Oh God, it's gonna be over so soon." And now yeah. it actually is. I know. I love it. Even today was like a, a nice
3: brisk fall day. It's well, I am happy
2: gone. that it's finally cold. Me too. I'm it so feels sick good. Of the summer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's try to bring the. Greatest October energy to the whole we year. Will. Yeah, absolutely. Just treat every month like I it's
3: October. I did tell Lindsay the other day, I think October
2: is the only month out of the year that I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of three conversations that leads to you just saying we're getting a divorce. <laughs> I don't know that you should say
3: that. Well, she gets
2: it. I'm never happy, especially the moments <laughs> I'm awake. She understands that feeling joy is very difficult for me. <laughs> anyway, we'll keep it brief. Follow the show on X slash Twitter at Greatest Pod find us on email greatest at gmail.com we want to hear from you we'll get back to reading them next week if you'd like a sticker let us know there may or may not be stickers coming for the new logo the greatest october logo yeah
3: there's definitely some merch ideas in the works that being well you, at fun.
2: one point you were talking about t-shirts and that still hasn't happened it, well so i i don't know if we should it's correct. gonna happen
3: things are happening
2: things are happening and
3: let us work at our own pace people okay
2: Find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby. We've got three more Greatest October episodes left, so hang tight. Make sure you're subscribed. Give us some love on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to see a new rating and review. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.
1: Biscuit-eating bulldog. What the French Did toast? Do you think I wouldn't find out about your little doo-doo head cootie queen? Who are you
0: calling a cootie queen? You lint liquor! Pickle you come You're quack. overreacting.
1: No, Bill, overreacting was when I put your convertible into a wood chipper. Stinky stink face.
2: You hoboken.